This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, we have a very special guest, and I know I say that every week, but really, this week, we have a very special guest. You know him from the 538 blog, formerly of the New York Times and now with ESPN, Nate Silver. We had a wide-ranging and lengthy conversation about everything from sports to statistical analysis to politics and campaigns, and given the current madness in the um, campaign season, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about what's going on, much of which is really, really fascinating. We we went a little long, and normally I like to give you a little more details in these intros, but I think this uh, this podcast stands on its own. We covered everything, so rather than me continually babbling about how fascinating this is. Let's just jump right to it. Here's my conversation with 538's Nate Silver. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business, my special guest is one Nate Silver. You probably know him from 538. A quick bit of background about Mr. Silver graduated in 2000 from the University of Chicago, bachelor's degree in economics, became frustrated by what he was seeing both in the world of sports statistics and politics, created, we'll talk a little bit about Pocota, which was the baseball statistical uh, system you had set up, and basically said while stranded in an airport in New Orleans... The idea for 538 popped fully formed into your head. Is that true? I, I'm not sure fully formed, right? There was a certain amount of, you know, gumbo and stuff had been consumed. Right. And yeah. And, and kind of things, slosh, slosh of thought. Lots of other things in New Orleans, too. So, but. but the analysis about about elections was frustrating you. And, and obviously, 538 is the number of total votes in the U.S. Electoral College, of which you need 269 or 270, 270 to, to win. 270 to win outright, yeah. And, um, and created 538. Uh, uh, just a quick background on, about 538. In 2008, it correctly predicted the winner in 49 of 50 states for the presidential election. Uh, it gets licensed by the New York Times in 2010 in anticipation of the 2012 election, and he basically, Nate, runs the table in 2012, predicts every state and the District of Columbia correctly as to the winner of uh, Barack Obama versus Mitt Romney, as well as all 35 um, senatorial races. Well, the Senate was in, I should be correct. The Senate was in 2008. We had 35 for 35. We missed, I think, two in 2012. How dare you, sir? Well, the You're, irony, and we'll talk about this more okay, later. Okay, good. But, I'm, I'm, yeah. I there, have a list there of There are several questions. ironies in like, the fact that you know, uh, because we got lucky, basically, or, you know, there's some skill, but there's a lot of luck. In so 2000- let's jump right into that. So normally yeah. at this point I say, welcome to Bloomberg, but <laughs> I know you. you've been here before, yeah. and I'm, I'm really, thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm really excited. We'll talk a little bit about your relationship um, with various uh, statistical approaches, how 538 just blew up at the New York Times, and how life is currently at ESPN. And then we'll take a really close look at the 2016 election. So I'm sure there's a, a, a ton of stuff. I would be remiss if I failed to mention that you were named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world, and that your book, The Signal and the Noise, was a New York Times bestseller and an Amazon number one pick 
for bestseller nonfiction in 2012. Well, thank you. So, so that's really um, we're out of time now, but <laughs> let's 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 start with a little bit of of baseball. So, yeah. you developed something called Pakoda. T- tell the listening audience exactly what that so was. So, Pakoda is a terrible acronym. I, yes. Yeah, it's like pitcher empirical comparison and optimization test algorithm. But the idea is that. Couldn't you have come up with something wonkier than that? Yeah, I mean, but Pakoda, Bill Pakoda was a baseball player. I played for the Royals. I so that's where that came from. In the 80s, as a Tigers fan. He was always a thorn in the side of the Royals, right? So it was meant to be kind of intentionally self-parrying and, and goofy. Right. Um, a, the, little, a little, a um, little, pardon the pun, inside baseball? A little inside baseball, yeah. And that's the thing I think people don't realize about, you know, kind of what I do. It's always a little bit, it's very serious work, but we're not taking ourselves too mm-hmm. seriously. But anyway, the idea of Pakoda was to use baseball's very rich history to project the future, which is really all, you know, 95% of Cisco models are really using just history to predict the future, right? An extrapolation um, based on what's the highest probability yeah. relative to what's happened in the past. But in baseball, you have so many good years of data and so many players every season where you can say, you know, uh, take, a, you know, current player, right, Curtis Granderson or whatnot, age mm-hmm. 33, whatever it is for the Mets, and go back in history and see who were the guys who were like Curtis Granderson at age 33. And Similar you can attributes, similar history. Similar attributes, right, and you can say, okay, so now we can say kind of here are 100 different career paths for him. What's you, the risk of a— You very easily could have ended up in a career path where you would have either been a Wall Street analyst or economist because essentially— the better ones, that's what they do, recognizing the limitations it's, of, it's of the process. pretty similar, right? Mm-hmm. And we're, we're spoiled in sports in the sense that um, so, much the data, data. so much data, the data is so reliable. You know, there's not really a lot of uh, uncertainty there in terms of measurement error, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you get really spoiled in sports and you spend a lot of your time actually testing hypotheses, whereas in most fields... You know, to some extent, including politics, you're spending 90% of your time cleaning up the data and scratching mm-hmm. your head and saying, you know, does this tell us anything at all? We, we look at non-farm payrolls, the way it's measured each month yeah. has changed and evolved over time. Yeah. Everybody forgets, you know, this data doesn't go back forever. It was only after the Great Depression yep. and FDR essentially created the Commerce and Bureau of Labor Statistics Department in order to assemble this data so we can actually look. So, so let's get into a... A little more um, details, and and we'll we'll come back to Pakoda because it's it's fascinating. In two thousand and seven, you're still working for you sell Pakoda to Baseball Prospectus. Mm-hmm. You're writing for them, and you start posting at the Daily Coast under the name Poblano, looking at various um, polling data and a way to to. Well, why don't I let you describe what yeah. what were you doing in oh seven? So. Uh- so I had worked for Baseball Prospectus for, for several years at that point. And this was kind of in an era when Moneyball came out in 2002 or 2003, sure. right? Fantastic um, book. The movie was great. Great book. And you kind of, that triggered a lot of interest in things that Bill James had been running about for decades, actually. Sabermetrics right? has been around for, yeah. it seems like, forever. But you saw how much of an impact that had both on the game itself, the way the game was played, and the way the game was covered mm-hmm. by the media. And it seemed like there was very little of that in campaign coverage at all. Um, so I kind of started anonymously at Daily Coast uh, kind of writing these little things about about the 2007 primary between Clinton and Obama mm-hmm. um, and eventually said, you know, I kind of want to be on my own here. And so I launched 538.com in March 2008. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today, Nate Silver of 538. 
the man who correctly predicted just about every race that mattered in 2012 and came pretty darn close in, in 2008, got just about everything right then. So you launched the site in 08. You mm-hmm. do a great job with the election in 08, uh, not only determining who's going to win the Democratic primary. So a lot of your insights turned out to be very prescient on that. Uh, but then you do the head-to-head uh, between Obama and McCain and, and Hillary McCain. And tell us what you found. Well, I mean, 2008 was not really among the more suspenseful general elections. Um, I guess early on in March when I launched, uh, it was a little bit closer. But historically, polls in March don't tell you very much, right? And that's one of the things you talk about very often, which I think a lot of people don't really pay attention to otherwise, which is, hey, here's the polls. But at this stage... We spend, don't give us a lot. The of election cycle is a really, really long thing, right? And we spend in this probably, country. In this country, go to the yeah. UK. They don't understand. It's five and a half weeks, yeah. and they spend nine million dollars, and uh, they look at us like we're crazy. But here we have it's a two-year process, right? Um, and we probably spend eighty percent of that time at five thirty-eight saying, you know what, these polls are not very meaningful. You should not take them too literally. Interpret them with a lot of caution, right? Then at the end, we say, actually, when you get after Labor Day, then they the polls really do have a pretty good track record, mm-hmm. right? And pay more attention to them. And so, but people people don't do that, right? They kind of uh, are too distrustful of the polls in November and much too serious about the polls, like now in August of all things, mm-hmm. a year before the election. Um, you know, you could go back and look at who was ahead in August of the past nomination campaigns. Well, in 2012, Rick Perry at this point in time was surging past Mitt Romney. In 2008, it was Rudy Giuliani and Hillary Clinton. 2004, it was Joe Lieberman and Howard Dean on the Democratic side, Amazing. right? Um, so kind of four in a row. And before that, 2000 was a more predictable year, right? Um, but, you know, 92, Bill Clinton hadn't even entered the race yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, people kind of ignore history at their, <laughs> at their peril. That, that's fascinating. We'll get to that more in, in a later segment when we talk about sure. this current election. So, so 08 comes and goes and you do a, you know, killer job. Who else, uh, besides the times approached you? How did that come about? We had, uh, four or five or six conversations with different people. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I try and be respectful of those conversations, but mm-hmm. there was, there was a lot of interest. I mean, I think people knew how big a story 2008 had been, you know, for Huge. me, it was kind of like, it would be useful to have, I mean, I was basically running 538 on my own. We had some other part-time contributors, but I was mm-hmm. doing everything from doing the graphics to writing the stories, trying to promote the blog. And it was just a lot of work. And I think, um, that's an overused word, but there has to be some synergy between what a contributor might have to say and a big media company like the Times, for example. And, sure. Um, was at the MIT Sloan Business Conference, which is a sports business conference every year, and ran into an editor from the Times on a train platform, and we really? and we talked, and so it was kind of spontaneous, right? A, um, a little serendipity and. Uh... Yeah, a little serendipity, and it wound up being a, a really good fit for a couple of years. It, it was a tremendous fit, and if memory serves. Something like in the height of the 2012 election, uh, the the I'm sure I'm destroying the statistic, but you were 20 or 25 percent of the total New York Times web traffic. I think you know at, that, at a peak. Stack, anyway. It's a little like, at a peak. At a peak, yeah. Um, that's amazing. You know, I think on election week, something like 20 percent, 25 percent of unique news users at the Times went by and viewed. Wow. 538. Um, that's so insane. It was really nice, and it, it definitely got really crazy. I can uh, imagine. Toward the end of, I mean, it's a little bit like, this is really self-aggrandizing, right? But it's a little bit like, um, I feel some sympathy for like 
Olympic athletes where you know that every four years their life becomes like a total crazed right. swamp of stuff although, going on. Although the difference between you and an Olympic athlete um, is that they're training the entire four years. They train the entire four years. You right? have eat a, college- a, I eat a lot better than I do. But, uh, <laughs> so let me ask you about training. Food doesn't matter as much as – so you have an undergraduate degree from University of Chicago, great yeah. school, in economics – I would have assumed it was applied mathematics, statistics, and probability. I know those can be concentrations within economics. How did you find your way into this form of statistical analysis? I mean, U of C is a pretty quantitative school in general, but Mm -hmm. it was really kind of stuff I did outside of of school and outside of work. So sports in particular was kind of like a lot of applied statistics. You want to win your fantasy baseball league. You want to win your NCAA tournament bracket and you know like i said earlier the data in sports is so good that it's a good way to train your hypothesis testing skills and logical inference skills and stuff like that but it's all you know it's all kind of a a passion project and also you know i'm motivated by um there's that cartoon about oh someone's wrong on the internet and you can't get to sleep right like i'm motivated by that a little bit xkcd yeah xkcd one of my favorite come to bed somebody's wrong (laughs) on the internet but i'm a little bit like the person in that cartoon right he's not going to bed because i'm like boy you know you go and read the campaign coverage and in the mainstream press and it's blatantly wrong sometimes you you don't think that because somebody saw some lawn signs in palm beach that didn't determine who's no i mean the the, reliance uh, on anecdotal evidence or or the you know what's funny which did an article about how how hillary clinton's problems are at least as far as the democratic primary concerned a little bit overrated but i went mm -hmm. back and looked at the kind of coverage of past campaigns like 2000 Al Gore versus Bill Bradley and theme for theme sometimes almost word for word same you can article. see the same stories written and the fact that people kind of forget that history right it's not, it's not forgetting right I mean they're really smart people working on on campaign coverage but there's an incentive to to tell the story and to sell the story in a to, narrative format and in a narrative format and that's kind of for me campaign journalism's original sin right um is it's like a baseball season where things play out really slowly. It's a mm-hmm. really long season. Not that much happens from day to day. Maybe you'll have a few genuine events that are um, upset the apple cart, but not many. But it's hard to write every day the story like, you know, today people campaigned and nothing of importance <laughs> happened, right? So in the last minute we have in this segment, how did you end up finding ESPN? I'm going to assume your love of sports has made that a really strong fit. Yeah, well, there were a couple reasons. I mean, after... 2012, the contract with the New York Times um, expired, and we again, um, we the royal we, meaning me and my lawyer and whatnot, talked to six or seven different companies. Um, you know, but ESPN offered a couple of things that were unique. One is that they realized that I'm not just about politics; that to some extent, I want to hedge and diversify what I'm doing because we did get lucky in 2012. Um, and the other thing is that you know they have the resources to invest in a company that can grow at a sustainable rate and um and evolve a little bit right we have 25 or 30 people now working for us at at 538 um you know it's sustainable we we think we hope i mean you know we say hey look our traffic is growing therefore can we hire this person who will help us to keep that growing um but you know that kind of more entrepreneurial attitude i think is is a good fit at espn You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is statistical wizard Nate Silver, uh, the man who correctly forecast the 08 and 2012 elections. Let's talk a little bit about baseball. So here we are. This is being recorded in (laughs) mid-August 2015. What stands out this year as 
statistically aberrant or interesting or unusual. I think if you actually look at the uh, preseason predictions, and thankfully I don't have to make these anymore. Mm-hmm. They've had one of the more inaccurate years in a long time. A lot oh. of the stat systems said the Royals um, were likely to regress heavily to the mean. Not and, so much. And they haven't, right? Um, you know, the Nationals, I think, were supposed to win 95 games, and they're struggling uh, to break 500 right now. You've seen the Mets do pretty well, which is um, maybe not that shocking given how it much It is talent. to New Yorkers. It we're is to New Yorkers. Basically, you're waiting for the late-season collapse. So. But given how much talent they had in their farm system, maybe not that shocking, but not it's come the, maybe maybe Not the year. first time that's happened. Yeah. Oh, look at all this talent. Why well, look, we we'll see how it goes. And, you know, finally, teams have learned how to manage their young pitchers a little bit better and a little bit more cautiously, maybe, and we'll see if this is sustainable for the Mets or not. But that's a little bit different. You mean not ruining them early on? Is not ruining, uh, not ruining them early on, like the famous like triple eight, the Van Poppel years or the Jason mm-hmm. Isringhausen crop, and you know. Um, so so far, it's gone well for the Mets with their with their young pitchers. Famous last words, I right. guess. Right. We'll see. We'll see how long that that stands. Yeah. Earlier, we were talking about Pakoda. Um, I didn't realize that was just pitchers. I thought that was players. Is it- so it started out with pitchers, mm-hmm. the idea being that um, pitchers are much harder to predict than hitters. Um, and so I thought this really? is where there's That's more of That's interesting. Yeah. What, why is that? Uh, for a lot of reasons. One is that kind of measures of pitching are more indirect, right? Like if you look at wins and losses, well, it's conditional on how many runs you give up and how many runs you give right. up. Is it conditional on how many hits you give up and how many walks you give up? So now we know a lot more. But you would now, think you would think pitches thrown and yeah. strikes versus balls and but now, see, but, and earn running but ten years But 10 years ago, this is not where the state of the art of thinking was. And also we didn't actually have data. Like now we can say, oh, you know what, um, Jason Verlander, he's not the pitcher he once was. We can actually say, well, now he doesn't throw as hard as he once did, right? right? You have data on every pitch and what the velocity is, what the Mm -hmm. speed is, what a pitcher is doing on different counts, right? Um, So now the pitching uh, forecasts have come a long way past (laughs) Pakoda. But, you know, the other thing, too, is that pitching is kind of an inherently unnatural act on a a pitcher's arm, right? Um, Um, Okay. I I pitched in high school, so I'll... uh... And, you know, I have the torn rotator cuff to prove it. (laughs) But I'm not going to argue with you. Whipping a ball, whipping your shoulder around that way for 90 or so throws a game is is not what normal. You could you could throw a spear if you're out in the on the savannah hunting mammoths, but you're not going to throw a spear 97 times. But pitcher. Yeah. Pitchers. And, you know, even though now pitch counts are monitored more now, every pitch, every at bat is contested so much, right? Mm-hmm. The strikeout rates are so high. There are a lot of pitches per plate appearance. Obviously, there's a lot of focus on taking walks and plate discipline. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing about pitching that people realize now, maybe not 10 years ago, is that a lot of what people think of as pitching is really positional defense. And you've seen phases evolve kind of in the early Moneyball days. People were like, well, it's hard to measure defense. Therefore, let's just kind of ignore it and put a big, a lot of big, clunky, chunky outfielders out there, and they'll hit a lot of home runs, right? And then teams realized... Um, you know, actually, a lot of this is positional defense. We can really see the impact of having a good center fielder, a good faster, not necessarily the slugging sort of batter as they used to be. Yeah, but the difference between a hundred yard blooper over the uh, over the second baseman's head, depending on where it goes, is either an out or a double. And the funny it's thing the about same, say certainly the same bad contact with the ball. I mean, if you save, uh, you know. 20 hits a year with your defense. I mean, you know, if you got 20 more hits a year with your batting average, and that translates to, what, 40 points of batting average, right? So it's mm-hmm. really pretty significant. And the differences can be that large. But, you know, one 
one thing to remember here is that there's always the peril that people think, oh, if you can't measure something, therefore it's not important. And once we got better locational data, we can actually say, oh, now we can actually physically measure how much range uh, Lorenzo Cain covers mm -hmm. or whatever, right? We're no longer guessing, and it's like, boy, those are some pretty big differences, actually. So recently on 538, there was an article about tennis gets essentially the money ball treatment. What yeah. other sports will benefit from this sort of statistical analysis that currently are, are escaping its gaze? I mean, in terms of kind of what sports are on that nice part of the mm -hmm. learning curve, um, the NBA is one of them, certainly. I mean, you know, teams like the Houston Rockets are run by Daryl Morey, who's an MIT guy, right? Um, you know, we're actually introducing a kind of basketball version of Picota mm -hmm. um, called Carmelo, which will debut at some point. <laughs> In the next and what does Carmelo two? stand for? Oh, gosh. It's some very clever acronym. It's like career arc regression estimate, something like that, uh -huh. right? Oh, that's hilarious. But a lot of letters in Carmelo were good with very geeky words. Um, you know, soccer is a sport where there's been very little data collected, but now you see teams in the premiership have their, their stat heads and whatnot. And obviously the magnitude of the economy of soccer is so enormous, right? Where, um, where you know, that might be the next frontier. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is statistical wizard Nate Silver. And here we are towards the end of the summer in 2015. And we just had the Republican uh, first debate. And we're looking at Iowa and New Hampshire coming up. This is quite a fascinating electoral season, isn't it? Yeah, we've never seen. So I know um, I'm being a little bit anecdotal here, but the type of um, traffic that we're getting on our politics articles in August, which is historically this. August 25th, a year before. Yeah, talking... a year before. This is historically about the slowest time of the year for politics news or hard news in general. Right. And it's it's kind of like it's September of the election year. Right. It's right. not quite the November peak, but like, you know. Um, people are fascinated by Donald Trump, by Bernie Sanders, um, in a way that's way ahead of where things were at at 2012. So I kind of am conflicted here. Where on the one hand, it's probably good for it's great our for traffic, business. On the other hand, hey, it's, it's a little early. maddening, right? And I think you know so much of what we say at 5:38 is slow down, right? This is not mm -hmm. going to unfold today or next week or this month. It's going to take a while. Slow down. Take the long view. Don't hyperventilate about this stuff. And so they're conflicting impulses here. That, I say that about stock markets all the time. It is. It is and quite. People want it like, oh, the hair's on fire. Apple is down 15%. But part of it is that you have this whole industry of, of commentators mm -hmm. who are asked to say, weigh in on what happened today, right? And are very close to the subject matter. Um, and, you know, so to a first approximation, you might learn more about the campaign if you went on vacation for <laughs> for a month, right? Now we just love when reporters will get back on Twitter and they'll say, oh my gosh, you know, we're still talking about Trump now. It's like, well, yeah. So let, let's talk about Trump. Yeah. For, first, what does he do to the calculus? Really, the first question is, how unusual of a candidate is he? So I'd say right now he's not quite as unusual as people would say, at least if you kind of made him a statistical data point, right? In the sense mm -hmm. that, first of all, we had in 2012, um, four or five different Republican candidates from Michelle Bachman to Newt Gingrich, who surged Herman Cain in the polls to about where Trump is, 20, 25%, um, and then faded um, sometimes rapidly, sometimes slowly after that. But there's also another tradition of kind of gadfly anti-establishment candidates like mm -hmm. Pat Buchanan, which Trump belongs to too. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and some of them were able to hold on to a segment of the Republican base 
um, through Iowa and New Hampshire. So I don't discount the possibility that Trump could be with us for for a long time. I do discount the idea that he could ever become the nominee or grow. You think it's highly unlikely that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee? Yeah, I mean, I put the chances recently at, at 2%, 2%, which is um, when you kind of go through and say, well, there are basically six different hurdles that he faces and say he has a 50-50 shot of clearing each hurdle, then you get to, you know, one in 64 chance, which is, you know, 2% if you round up. Right. That's pretty fascinating. So what about on the other side, Bernie Sanders? What does he do to this calculus? So socialist running for president. Socialist running. First time in uh, (laughs) half a century, I think. I mean, the funny thing is you have all the media hype is about um, a Democrat who's not even officially Democrat and a Republican who, let's be honest, (laughs) is not really even a Republican, right? You know, That's hilarious. I never thought about that, but that's absolutely true. I think the Bernie Hillary race is a lot more typical mm-hmm. in some ways where you have someone to the far left of a Democratic candidate. Yeah. And if you kind of mapped out and kind of um, actually mapped out in a very mathematical way, kind of where are Democrats preferences then you know, about a third of the electorate would say we're closer to Bernie Sanders. He's mm-hmm. not quite there yet in the polls, but it would not be surprising if he got a third of the vote nationally. And the thing is, though, um, Iowa, New Hampshire, you have a lot of liberals and you have a lot of a lot of white liberals and Bernie Sanders is doing pretty well with white voters, not so well with Hispanics, African-Americans. So um, so it's entirely possible he could win um, New Hampshire, Hampshire. maybe Iowa and a few other states He could win Wisconsin and Oregon and states like that, Massachusetts, Um, you know, but there was a poll out recently in Alabama which is where Hillary was beating him 81 to 12 wow. or something like that, like an Alabama football score <laughs> or something almost, um, you know, and um, look, what you don't get from kind of reading the press coverage every day is that by every metric she's doing as well as any non-incumbent has the stage of the primary ever, whether she's beating Sanders by 20 points or 30 points nationally, Doesn't matter. she's still way ahead. She's already been endorsed by half the democratic Congress, Basically, but also that, you know, these things tend to tighten. If you go back and look at candidates like Clinton in the past. So Al Gore um, Mm -hmm. came within a couple of points of losing to Bill Bradley. Right. Um, You know, George Bush in 1988 was a sitting vice president, which is kind of analogous to Clinton's position. He finished third in Iowa, lost like seven or eight states. Um, uh, George W. Bush in 2000 was as much of a juggernaut as you could be, but McCain caught him, won a few states. So the kind of modal outcome is that that she does lose a few states, New Hampshire being one of the better candidates, right? Um, And then by by February or March of next year, we're like, you know, what was all the... What was all the fuss about? Right, she's also out, out raising him monetarily. By and the some money, ridiculous... and the money helps too. It might same be... with Jeb, right? Jeb is the big winner on the Republican Jeb side. Jeb has, although on the GOP side, uh, everyone has so much access to capital that that's one of the things that is, I think, a little bit different now. It used to be that. So look at um, uh, Tim Pawlenty uh, in 2011, right? Mm-hmm. Perfectly plausible candidate, Midwestern governor, right? Um, kind of down the middle positions for Republican. Um, but he ran out of money, uh, you know, even four years ago. And so he's like, well, I have to pull the plug. Um, you know, now a candidate like Rick Perry, who's raised almost no public funds, like a million dollars, which is, um, you know, Donald Trump would call that pathetic, I think. Um, <laughs> he can, he can tap a into a super PAC. The super PACs no longer are maintaining any pretense of separating their operations from the campaigns. I think there's uh-huh. no um, enforceable legal risk there. And so his campaign can can continue. But that's why I think, you know, we are a little bit in new territory with the 
GOP side just because you have 17 candidates running. And as much as Democrats might not want to admit it, these are 17 candidates, a lot of whom have some really impressive credentials, right? Like governors and senators from big, large swing states. Those are typically pretty strong candidates. Um, of course, so you also have like, the, let's talk Ohio then. Yeah. Uh, well, um, Kasich is a candidate who maybe is a little bit of a of a dark horse. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done something interesting, which is he's invested a lot of money in advertising in New Hampshire now. Uh-huh. Um, the reason it's interesting is that- Sort of foregoing Iowa and going straight to New Hampshire? Well, or? I think the goal is actually to get some media buzz, right? Because the advertising says that, hey, um, or the empirical literature says advertising has really short-lived effects, right? You see an ad, mm-hmm. you might remember it for a week or two, so you should save your money toward the end and then advertise. But I think he wants to say, look, it's a field of 17 candidates that want to stay on the first debate stage, so to speak, get some positive attention, build some momentum. And so he's kind of investing in trying to make a, a name for himself now. But yeah, he has a case and he can say, look, I'm really popular in Ohio. Boy, that happens to be a pretty important state in the general election. Um, and also it indicates that I can I can win over a broad and diverse coalition of voters too. Um, so, you know, I mean, there are questions about, uh, you know, so I'm skeptical about Trump's chances. There's no one Republican you can point to though and say, boy, they've had a great start to their campaign so far either. Right. Um, yeah. You know, Jeb is kind of faltered on the Iraq question, a few other things. I think people were generally unimpressed with Walker's performance. With Walker. Although I would say um, Rubio didn't hurt himself. Yeah. Rubio is Rubio was in one candidate where, you know, I talked about how on the Democratic side come March, we might be saying, yeah, this was kind of obviously how it was going to play out, right? I think we could say that March of next year, you know, boy, it was clear that Rubio was a really smart consensus choice, right? He's a little bit more relatable than Bush. He's a little bit more electable than Walker. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he wasn't panicked about trying to boost his poll numbers in August. He waited till toward the end. Um you know, Rubio, I think, I don't know. I mean, you know, Bush has the money. He's a little bit ahead of Rubio on the polls, although no one's and you above can't 10%. Have a Bush, you can't have a Bush-Rubio ticket, right? Both you can't have, well, there's some machinations about, I guess there are some end arounds maybe, but we, you know, I don't know all the constitutional details there, but basically the answer is basically, no, I think you would not have, you could have, you know, Rubio and Walker or Rubio and Kasich. You do I, have a lot all of- All the way around, Kasich, Rubio, the senior Potentially. Governor. So one thing that happened, by the way, is that the GOP had- um, a very good election in 2010 and then another one in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and they won lots of Senate and governor seats in swing states. So, you know, that's a benefit now as they have a whole suite of candidates to pick from that are, are popular or at least somewhat popular in, in big swing states like Florida and, and Ohio and whatnot. Hmm, quite quite fascinating. So we, I just said Kasich Rubio. How, how important are the VP choices to the electability or the polling no- numbers of either candidate? So historically, VP choices are are not all that important. Um, as best as we can tell, you get about a two or three percent boost in the state where the VP candidate is from. Sometimes, although even that seems to be fading. Paul Ryan didn't help mm-hmm. Mitt Romney very much in Wisconsin, apparently. Um, but there's downside to the VP choice. You know, I think um, although she was heralded at first, Sarah Palin probably um, wound up further injuring any chance McCain might have had in 2008. Uh, you know, we go back to 72 and Eagleton and right. Shriver and that whole mess. Sure. Um, so, you know, to some extent making the, um, the way Obama played it, where you pick this boring old safe, safe white guy, basically. Right. Um, but I know there are different ways to do it. 
We've been speaking with Nate Silver. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast where the tapes keep rolling and uh, we keep recording until uh, the guests pass out from exhaustion. <laughs> if you enjoy uh, this conversation, be sure and check out all of our other interviews. Follow my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter. Uh, at Ritholtz, your your Twitter handle is at Nate Silver. Nate Silver five thirty eight. Nate Silver five. What did somebody else grab? Nate at Nate Silver. I think so. Yeah. Uh, that's that, that's a shame. I'm sure uh, you you have the blue check mark, so you're verified. I, I got the blue check mark, and um, but you know, so our website is actually five thirty eight spelled spelled out. out, not the number. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. All right, welcome to the podcast portion of our show. Nate, thank you so much for doing this. I'm really I'm excited about this, and I've been looking forward to chatting with you you for for a while. For having me, my my pleasure. So, there's so many different questions we we didn't get to that I really want to talk to. This is the big, big one. We'll save. (laughs) So, the one question Mike Batnick in my office is uh, uh, said you have to ask him this question, and it's how important are managers to team success or failure, and how do we measure that statistically? So in in baseball in particular, sure. or another, I think we can in, talk football also because that 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 comes up quite often. I think in baseball, first of all, the strategic choices a manager makes are not very consequential, right? Really, you can debate like, oh, how often should you sack bunt or right? You know, um, some guys now have the pitcher hitting eighth. The impact of that stuff is probably not more than a couple of wins a year mm-hmm. over a hundred sixty-two game season. Um, what I think is understudied is uh, how much influence a manager has on getting the best out of his players as simple as that sounds right um you know there have been some studies done in the nba where you say take a preseason prediction about a guy's statistical line that doesn't know who the manager is and then how often does uh greg popovich for example get his players to outperform that prediction either by Mm -hmm. by improving their skills or by filling a role better and the answer is you know routinely the spurs in a way that's statistically significant beat their kind of raw um, projections from maybe not necessarily from Vegas. Vegas can account for that, um, mm-hmm. but from like a naive algorithm, right? And so I've not seen that done for baseball, although I'm sure someone has. But kind of saying, you know, who really motivates their guys to to do the best? That's still kind of a black box a little bit. That, that's fascinating. I, I I have a mixed um, relationship with sports books. Some are better, <laughs> some are worse. Yeah. The one that I really liked, which it is right up your alley. Did you read Tom Coughlin's book, Earn the Right to Win, former uh, Giants former, coach? I did not, no. So the one statistical thing that stayed with me from that book that was so fascinating, I don't remember which player was complaining about it, um, uh, uh, center linebacker that was, uh, you know, they would run a whole bunch of numbers for every opponent. On second and long, here's what they like to do. On third and one, here's what they like to do. Uh, on in the red zone late in the game, here's what they like to do, and they would they would just bury these guys who just weren't used to this sort of yeah. mathematical stuff. And he always, I, I wish I could remember who it was, which giant um, that won a, a championship with him and complained about this constantly, and then gets traded somewhere else, and it's you know third and one. And he goes, all right, what are they going to do? And I don't know. And it <laughs> dawns on yeah. him that. Oh, this Conklin guy, Conklin guy was fantastic. That that data was really helpful to know what the. Uh, certainly, it's not a sure thing, but 
hey, they like to do this at, at third and one. And I got to think that that, how do you measure? Yeah, the, I mean, football is a different story, right? I think everyone from stat heads to um, coaches themselves would say that NFL coaches are pretty darn important. Significant. Yeah. Uh, look at look at the Seattle, um, uh, the Super Bowl this year. Yeah. You know. You, well, so this is, <laughs> you know, we would say the cho- there was some very long analysis we did that the choice that um, Pete Carroll made was fine. You defended actually. it, I recall. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, see, I looked at it as <laughs> he was playing a um, a high risk, lower probability game. Consistently, if you look at a lot of the choices that were made, you start to veer into the anecdotal. Well, what about this? And why did they run here? And why did they throw? But the chat, you know, something like one percent of passes get intercepted in that situation. Right. So it's kind of a a rounding error, really. And there's a lot of kind of you know post facto sure. analysis, right? No one would ever have complained about that play call for a second if it, he caught the pass, right? If it was if it wasn't intercepted, it's a whole different. Uh, yeah. Well, to the to the uh, victors, not only goes the spoils, but the opportunity to to write history. For sure. Um, so we we mentioned intangibles. How do you measure the intangibles of a player? And and again, mentorship, attitude, locker room behavior. Can you ignore these things? What what do they actually actually mean? So I I've been thinking about ways to kind of set up a um, a verifiable experiment for this, and one might be. If people identify in advance, say, 20 baseball players they think have strong or weak leadership and then see what happens when they change teams, and is there some residual value you can identify? Um, But But short of that, can you really – in other words, unless you really run a control group, it's pretty hard to – In baseball, performance is pretty individualized. Like The NBA is different. The NBA, the whole challenge of the NBA is you have um, one possession – per possession, right? One shot per possession. You have mm-hmm. to get the guys to cooperate. They have selfish incentives to each take the shot and boost their stats or whatnot, mm-hmm. right? And so that makes coaching important. It makes um, chemistry important. And you can sort of measure this. You can kind of say uh, what residual value is there when a guy is on the court or off the court, and there's mm-hmm. some better and better methods for doing that. Now that some of the guys who um, who play 25 minutes a game, and they're like, oh, they're defensive players. It might have been 10 years ago that the stat heads were like, oh, this guy can't shoot, right? He can't really do anything. And now we're seeing actually they often do have a big impact on the game. But baseball, I'm a little bit more more skeptical, in part because I think sometimes, um, sometimes the guys who um, have a rep for being good clubhouse guys are just guys who are friendly to the media, and that's a slightly different thing than necessarily <laughs> For sure. Good. Yeah. So in basketball, you know, I always, as a Nick fan who always felt thwarted by the Bulls under Michael Jordan, I always uh, picture him as a guy who doesn't put up with any nonsense in the locker room, and he demands top performance, and he drives the rest of his team the way that Patrick Ewing never did. It's arguable whether anybody since Michael um, – since um, – Anybody in the Lakers ever did this since Magic Johnson? Um, you know, you don't really know. You don't really see Kobe Bryant as that sort of player. Is that just anecdote and and after the fact, or did he? Is he the sort of guy that really had that impact? And is there any way after the fact we can we can determine that? I mean, one weird thing about and I grew up a Pistons fan, mm-hmm. so. Um, you know, everyone hated Michael Jordan for one reason or another. I remember in the in the final championship he won, was it ninety eight? I kinda involuntarily right. found myself rooting for him, right? I'm like, I can't root for Utah. Come on. Right. Um but <laughs> 
But Send wh- those cards and think- letters to NateSilver at ESPN.com. <laughs> one thing that I think helped Jordan's reputation, apart from being maybe the best basketball player of all time, that is that he didn't, hurt. he didn't have a lot of near misses, right? You know, uh, the the Bulls were probably the favorites in five out of the six uh, championship seasons where they won the championship, right? Um, but they were blown up in a hurry, right? Um, the year before, they won their first one, 91. It was a really strong time right. for the Eastern Conference. Kind of sat out the year and a half, right? Um, so for some reason, it almost feels to me like if Jordan had uh, won five championships in 10 tries, he would look worse than six out of six, but that's a pretty petty complaint. I mean, you know, Jordan had an amazing career. One reason I kind of like the NBA in contrast to other sports where there's so much randomness is that mm-hmm. in the NBA, there are not very many undeserving NBA champions, right? We saw in the it's NBA finals. It's not a lucky call or a bad bounce or something like that. You have to that, really win. that in tennis, really, if you want U.S. Opens coming right. up, right? Um, but you have to earn the NBA championship. We saw in the NBA finals last year the Cavs playing the absolute best of their ability, and they can win They can win two close games, right? Mm-hmm. It's really hard to win a seven-game series against a team when you know your second base player is best player is J.R. Smith or something. More power to J.R. Smith. But but, they, but so in other words, LeBron doesn't have the same supporting cast that Jordan did, and the Cavs need to do some offseason. Well, they've done some stuff. They need to do some more. Um, I mean, if everyone's if everyone's healthy, they're a good team. I mean, this mm-hmm. should be really fantastic. This is a great era for the NBA. Yeah. By the way, we're between the Spurs and the Warriors and the Cavs. Um, you're gonna have three great teams who are all very different. Looks styles, very different stylistically, yeah. so you know, um, you know, my boss who just signed this big new NBA contract should have a great season coming ahead. Um, and you said you mentioned tennis. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the the male players who I think it's been fascinating watching this go back and forth between uh, Nadal and you know, go down the list of the top five players. There's been this sort of rotating. How fast do the skills deteriorate at age 30? It seems like these guys peak 28, 29, and then they start, you know, just losing it a little bit. I think 28 or 29 might even be a little bit early. Obviously, you have guys like Sampras that held on, I guess, that held on for, for longer, but it's maybe more like like 25 or 26. I mean, I go to the U.S. Open every year. I'm not a huge tennis fan, but mm-hmm. I think people who are watching on TV – don't, don't realize how physically demanding it is amazing. to play a, a five-set match, right? Um, in the heat, <laughs> in in New York, in September, or in Australia, and in the, you know, what's summer down there, right? Um, These guys are know. hitting at 130, 140 miles an hour, yeah. and it, it's insane to and watch. And where the guys now actually play a, a, you know, really good defensive game, mm-hmm. um, you know, very, very challenging if you're not absolutely in the top of shape, right? And so in general, what happens is that for, you look at baseball where the data's good or something, um, you know, the average player peaks at 27. What that really is is that your physical attributes probably peak actually at, at age 23 or something. Your mental attitudes keep growing. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes up for the physical Yeah, and change. at 27, you have the best overall combination, for NFL, 23, these guys peak at 23. If you look at like an NFL running back and um, guys were just kind of purely about brute strength and how beat up or not your body is, mm-hmm. right? Very often an NFL running back is as best as he'll ever be in his rookie season, right? Wow. There's a quarterback conversely where obviously 
the arm strength matters, but the mental part's important too. Mm-hmm. A quarterback, of course, those guys can be perfectly good, sometimes even better in their thirties. You so, could you could deflate footballs way into your thirties. You can keep it you going. Can def- as, <laughs> you could. I don't think there's an any age limitation. Yeah. But I love the stories about Jerry Rice, about how he used to train in San Francisco, and you talk about the mental side of it. He used to invite people from the opposing teams to train with him and he would just run up and down the hills of San Francisco yeah. and he would destroy these guys. Yeah. They like could not keep up with him and then they'd see him on the field and they would be horrified. Stop and think about that sort of head game. I, I, I just find that uh, fascinating. But he's a guy whose career went, you know, uh, uh, quite quite deep into his 30s. That's um, Is that unusual for a receiver? For a receiver it is, yeah. Receivers are not quite as early peak as running backs, but mm-hmm. um, but you know they're definitely mid to late twenties for for the most part. Wow, that that's amazing. Um, so tennis we mentioned is the is one of the next things, and soccer. How are they going to change? How are you going to change the statistical analysis of of World Cup football of of soccer? Well, how I, do you how do you look <clears throat> at that? Um, I mean, historically, the only data that was collected were just goals and bookings, meaning yellow cards and. And red cards, right? That's it. That's changing now, though, right? So now, um, you know, in the big four or five leagues in Europe, depending on what you think of the French mm-hmm. league, um, you know, you have lots of real-time data collected. So now we ran a big article on Lionel Messi Yep, uh, last I remember year, that. That was fascinating. Where it's like you actually say now, okay, now we can actually measure all these things that we thought of as intangibles before, right? Like how well does he set up his teammates? How much space does he cover? Some things are actually a little bit counterintuitive. Like I think Messi doesn't cover that much territory. He's mm-hmm. very much kind of thinking about how can I have the most impact and being in the center of of the pitch more or less to mm-hmm. kind of be the focal point for for the offense. Um but best, yeah, I best think, player in the world today? Messi for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean and people no think, close. people don't realize how good he's amazing. He is, yeah. I, I'm a World Cup fan for a long time and I find it fascinating. I know I wish we had the World Cup every uh Every two years, I actually went uh, to the Women's World Cup in in Canada, which was a a ton of fun, right? Yeah. Um, to see Americans actually win something at soccer was <laughs> was spectacular. So, um, all right, so let's see what else we've forgotten or I skipped over in the prior segment. Um, so we'll save the election stuff for a little later, and I'm gonna I'm gonna touch that. We did that. We did this. Wow, this song. There's so much stuff I could I could stay on sports for a long time, but I want to I want to bring it back to, um, bring it back to to what you're doing with Five Thirty Eight now and a little mm-hmm. bit of the history with that. So you're named to one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in 2009. Then comes the Times. Then comes the the election. Personally, what's it like blowing up like that? I, I mean, that I mean, has it's... to be disorienting and and kind of like. What's going on? So one thing is that um, 2012, you're so busy that you kind of don't have time to process it almost all, really. So in 2012, my book came out in September 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, the combination of that and, of course, the, you know, Penguin, my PR people had me doing shows like this, like, like every day, pretty much. Right. And then there was random stuff. Hurricane uh, Sandy hit. At that time, oh, right? That's so, right. also going on, I was like kind of commuting in the dark from my uh, apartment then in Brooklyn to to the New York Times office or to do a media hit or whatnot. It was just kind of this crazy time. And then you emerge from it. And I was like at some conference in 
Chicago the weekend after the election. And it was like, like every time I got off the elevator, someone would like recognize me and be like, hey, are you Nate Silver? Right. And that was how weird is that? that? Was, that's pretty weird. Yeah. So I do less TV than I used to. But the one place that I got to ask if you have this experience, if you ever check a bag when you fly and you're waiting by the carousel, you're just. Fair game. You're, you're fair game. For some reason, it happens a lot in airports. I think yeah. a lot of people watch serious, quote-unquote, TV in, in airports on planes. But um, but it definitely, there's a half-life based on how recently you've been on TV. Right, right. But it probably happens, you know, a couple times a month still. But not daily. It used to be all the time. It used you, to be, yeah, yeah. And certainly, we may we may see that pick up again uh, towards next year, towards 2016. We'll see that, although I'm trying not to be... Uh, I don't know. I'm trying not to overexpose myself too much, if that makes sense. And part right. of it is that, you know, you've probably learned this too, but if um, if you have your own platform, right, and we have the opportunity to reach a very large audience at 538 mm-hmm. every day with the writing and the stuff we produce in-house podcasts and videos, um, you get very finicky about how you're presented. You know, it's sure. really easy to kind of come across as, oh, here's this kind of, you know, nerd who's a know-it-all and, you know, and, and we... Trying to have a little bit more subtlety in how we're presenting our view of how campaigns and elections work. And so, you know, um, so I'm trying not to uh, go too overboard with the with the media stuff. So what I certainly wouldn't argue with nerd. However, you never struck me as someone who presents himself as a know-it-all. In fact, your whole approach is. We don't know what the future can bring. Yeah. We don't understand which of these polls is going to actually be right. However, we can look at statistically taking the average of all of these, see how that did, did in the past, adjust it for some minor modifications, and come fairly close to the actual outcome. That's a humble approach, so, not an arrogant well, approach. Well, appreciate that. Thank you. Um, but am am I getting against... it right? Was that part of the plan? So or... I think it's a, you know it's kind of how do you weigh, what's your baseline priors, right? Mm-hmm. Um you know, in a general election, the prior in a campaign where the incumbent's running is that the incumbent will probably win unless things are pretty bad. In an election with pretty no fair. incumbent, it's probably this is going to be really close, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a primary, it's maybe a little bit more difficult, but you know, the history is that the establishment usually wins, right? In the primary. In the primary. Um, you know, the candidate who it's a consensus building process, a nomination process. Mm-hmm. Literally, it is the Democratic Party's nomination. And the GOPs to bestow, they kind of set the rules for how delegates are allocated and what happens, right? Um, so they have a lot of influence on the. They final have a lot outcome. of influence, right? You know, if the GOP doesn't want to nominate Donald Trump, it's actually not a popularity contest, right? right? They can make it very difficult for Donald Trump to do it, and there are maybe one or two cases. So McGovern in '72 um, was very smart about getting. Um, a lot of grassroots support from people who would be delegates at the Democratic National Convention and kind of um, he had designed the system for how delegates were allocated. And so he really mm-hmm. knew allocated. So he knew how to um, how to work that system really well. But 72 is kind of the only example of where uh, the inmates started running the asylum. What, right? what about 08? Um, wasn't Hillary sort of uh, ordained in advance and... Sort of that uh, so, Obama upset the apple cart a little bit. So Clinton in 2008 had, a, a you know, at this point in the race, like a 10 or 15 point lead over Obama. Mm-hmm. This year it's a kind of a 30 point lead over Bernie Sanders. But it has more, let's do with Hillary and more to do with uh, with Barack Obama versus versus Bernie Sanders, where Barack Obama represented a whole huge kind of 
mainstream part of the Democratic coalition. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, he did very well with African-American voters, which is a huge voting block in the coalition. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, you can basically split the Democratic coalition into thirds. So you can have uh, white liberals, white moderates and non-white voters. Actually, it's more like 40 percent of it, really. Right? Really? And, um, you know, he had better support across coalitions, but also he had lots of support from Harry Reid and whatnot. Right. Lots of influential people in the Democratic Party Can said we? said we have an amazing candidate in Obama. Right. And we want to make it a fair fight. Whereas this year, there is not a single sitting Democratic uh, legislator or excuse me, senator or representative or governor who has endorsed Bernie Sanders, in part because, you know, people, he's not a Democrat. He's not a Democrat. Um, he's 74 years old. He'd probably lose general election by by 10 points. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, what about Biden? What about Al Gore? Is anybody else going to credible going to throw their hat in the ring? Sure. Or is I, that just early chatter? I mean, I think. You know, let's say that Hillary Clinton, I think it's not likely. Maybe it's a 10% chance, right? Let's say these scandals are more serious than they appear to be. The email or something else? Maybe something else. I'm not I'm not totally persuaded. So, you know, baseball, there's just that value over replacement player, right? It's like, for uh-huh. me, it's like value over replacement scandal, right? Where kind of okay. you, assume, you assume for the Clintons that there's something like slightly funny going on, right? So maybe something- That's a given, in other words. It's yeah, just, uh, so relative they play a little to, close to the replacement edge. scandal, I'm not sure that- this is that remarkable. Well, Benghazi proved to be, you know, the Republican controlled yeah. committee. But I have Republican friends who are in D.C. who insist the email scandal is totally different than Benghazi. It's hard. This is more serious. It's, you've, you've seen a long decline in Clinton's favorability ratings. It's really hard to determine cause and effect and say, has that been accelerated by the email scandal or Can't not? Can't help. It, it certainly isn't helping. Um but overall, if you look at markets and their betting markets, their mm-hmm. perception of where Hillary Clinton stands hasn't changed. They've had her with about an 80% chance of winning the nomination really? for a long time. It's not been affected except at the margin by by Bernie or by the scandals. Um, you know, Biden um, or someone like Biden would at least be a little bit different in that um, in that let's say that Clinton is not doing well. Democrats would still, I think, want to intervene to not nominate Bernie Sanders, where they could say, well... Biden, he's fine, right? You right. know, Biden will give us a shot at least. And so, you know, that would be one of the more significant developments. So far from what I've read, it all seems pretty speculative. I think part of what Biden wants to do is say, you know what? Um, it's tricky because it's August right now. It takes a long time to mount a presidential campaign. Right. What happens if there is, maybe it's the email thing, maybe something new, maybe it's a health problem. What happens if Hillary Clinton, if that happens in November and then um, and then only Bernie Sanders is on on the ballot, right? Then you have a deeply damaged Democratic nominee in Clinton or someone who the party will not want to nominate in Sanders. That's where you have the kind of break glass for emergency Biden, Gore, John Kerry uh, type candidates, right? Um, and so I think part of what Biden's trying to signal is to say, look, I'm here, I'm around. If everything else is going wrong, you know, I'm at least thinking about this. I have a few people who are loyal to me. I can mount a campaign on the fly. That's very different from actually running. Mm-hmm. And the way he sends signals, it's very much like kind of this inside baseball, you know, Marine Dowd's Sunday column, right? Those are kind of dog whistles to, I think, uh-huh. other Democrats more than to like mainstream voters. Like, Ma- hey, if something really goes wrong with the Clinton campaign, then then I'm here. But I would say, you know... Um, we are speculative or dismissive of a lot of speculation about how Clinton is struggling. If Biden ran, that would at least be a more tangible sign that that some influential Democrats are worried about Clinton. So right now, statistically, 
if we had a guess, you're guessing Hillary Clinton is the Democratic nominee. Yeah, and you know, like I said, betting markets put the chances at eighty percent. I put them marginally higher. I think mm-hmm. um, you know eighty five percent, and I think of the of the fifteen percent, most of it's not Bernie Sanders. Most of it is that um, Al Gore, J- Biden, Joe Biden, Biden, uh, Kerry, Gore, mm-hmm. right, are the kind of the three people who could step in 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 an emergency. In case I of think. emergency, so it's fascinating that you say that. When we were looking at the 08 election, and I'm curious at your of your perspective, my thesis was at the time, so the Iraq war by then had turned sour. The economy was in a free fall. We were in the midst of a um, financial crisis. The running on the incumbent's track record, I said no matter who the GOP put up, they were going to get destroyed by yeah. whoever – the Democrats put up, but people have argued with me, well, if they would have nominated somebody instead of McCain and someone less charismatic than Obama, perhaps it would have been a very different outcome. Yeah, but- I mean, it was about the most difficult imaginable set of circumstances for the Republicans to win. I mean, not that I feel sympathetic for them because, you know, they had a president who made some mistakes, <laughs> shall we say. But, you know, you had the economy collapsing, a very unpopular war. The sitting president had a 28% approval rating, right? It that's that's a hugely low number for a sitting president. You, can, you know, one could argue that Obama should have won by 12 points instead of seven or something mm-hmm. like that, right? But that was about, you know, there are some years like 1992, that political scientists debate and say, you know, uh, it kind of was perceived to be kind of still in recession. If you look back on revised statistics now, it was actually doing it, The okay, recession was right? over before anybody realized but it. But 08 one of those years where- I don't know. Didn't Democrats matter. would have had to make a huge error uh, to lose. And in some ways, McCain wasn't a bad candidate. He was pretty moderate. He broke from the GOP in a lot of ways at a time when that party was really unpopular. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I thought he was a better candidate in 2000. He seemed to be less captured and therefore less nominated. Well, that's part of people are, are kind of concerned about which of these 17 Republicans will get nominated. To some extent, they all kind of get, except if it is a Trump or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're all going to kind of have the stamp of the party on them anyway, right? And the ones who are more moderate, Jeb Bush, at least by the time he gets nominated, would be pulled more toward um, toward the right. Scott Walker might be pulled more toward not the absolute left, but you know, become a little bit less conservative on some issues. And then they'll kind of go and do what they need to do for the general election. But um, but to some extent, um, you know, it is a party-driven process, and the candidates' own policy positions might be swamped by what the consensus is among Republicans. It, is it still true you you um, run the primary to the right and then um, run the main election to the center, or for the Democrats, run the primary to the left and then tack to the center for the I election? mean, that's the default, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, I think, some partisans would say, well, it's all about turnout now, so you want to motivate your base, right? I'm always a little bit suspicious mm-hmm. of that, kind of the notion that, boy, you can kind of have your cake and <laughs> and eat it too, right? Um, you know, it maybe works a little bit better for Democrats in the sense that there are just a few more Democrats in the, in the electorate than Republicans, so if mm-hmm. everyone turns out, um, they might have an edge. How do um, those numbers differ? What What's the GOP percentage and and how accurate is is that about independence? I always thought people were just angry at their party. A lot of people yeah. say they're independents and aren't really independents, right? right? But you know, Democrats have right now about a five or six point edge in party identification. But it doesn't give them any. Well, this will be a whole another hour long segment, right? Okay, we've um, got time. <laughs> um, 
you know, but there are a lot of qualifications to that. One being that they, the Democrats get a lot of people who are only marginally likely to vote, right? Uh-huh. Um, you know, if, if we had mandatory voting in this country, well, a lot of things would be different. So it's a weird hypothetical, right? Um, Without but, mandatory voting benefit who? Would benefit Democrats, right? More than Republicans. More than Republicans. Um, on the other hand, you know, a lot of times um, people won't turn out necessarily. Also, one thing that's a little bit tricky is that um, because the GOP has been unpopular, um, a lot of people that formerly would say, you know, I'm a Republican, now they'll say I'm an independent, but I lean Republican. So if right. you look at leaners, then it gets a little bit closer still. Um, so I couldn't completely relate to that because – we were talking before the show. I, I grew up. Jacob Javits was our senator, and that sort of center right Republican. You, Kasich is probably the closest thing. Kasich, to that. although we mentioned, you know, Bush has actually surprised me to the extent that um, he has run pretty explicitly as as a moderate, right? Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting approach. I think maybe he figures that look, I have a very long track record in public life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to fool anyone like Romney tried to do in 2012, right? Um, and then look like a flip-flopper in the general election, right. you know. There are always cases like that. One thing that amazes me is that in 2008, all three of the major Democratic candidates were against gay marriage, right? Officially, even though Obama right. had said, like in 2002, that he was pro-gay marriage, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, you know, are you really fooling anyone? I'm not. I'm not totally sure. And so I think Bush is saying, you know what? I am who I am. I'm a moderate conservative, right? Um, you know, I'd be very electable. Although this is the, the thing that's tricky for him is usually you'd have a candidate like that, um, like the McCain type candidate who's a moderate conservative and they have good um, electability numbers. And Bush, because the Bush family name is still not that popular, maybe he's not seen as that relatable, you know. Really? His head-to-head numbers are not any better than like the more conservative candidates against Clinton right now. So so let's talk about the head-to-head numbers. So when we look at Clinton versus fill in the blank, Hillary versus Jeb, Hillary versus Rubio, Hillary versus uh Kasich, who who stands the best shot at at winning? Well, this is what we talked about. You know, I probably would not look at those head-to-head numbers very much right Today. now. Now they're meaningless. They're almost meaningless, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're going to look at them, you know, candidates who have comparable name recognition to Hillary, which is kind of almost no one, but, you know, Jeff for Bush that has reason— got to be pretty close. For that reason, the Bush number, you know, I would discount almost all of it instead of literally all of it, as I might for, like, Hillary versus Rubio or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually there's a correlation between how moderate a guy is and how well he does among independents. Um you know, because Bush isn't personally seen that favorably, he might not have that edge this year, which is kind of why I say if you're a Republican, you might say, well, um, you know what? If we look at Rubio versus Bush, then we get a guy, number one, who's more conservative, right? Number two, who's actually a little bit more popular with independence. And number three, avoids this whole Bush versus Clinton dynasty angle. Right, Again, right. it's not my job to advise parties, but that's what Rubio is one candidate where you could kind of go back and say, I totally get why they nominated him, and boy, right. we were all discounting. So I'm, I guess I'm, you know, I'm bullish on on Rubio's chances. Uh, you know, to... here's the thing that I find fascinating: bright, Hispanic, articulate, like a really like, and you know, has almost a Kennedy-esque photogenetic, ph- photogenic sort of thing. Yeah. But when you look at his policies, and I know the Republicans are, you, uh, I don't remember if it was you or five thirty-eight wrote about the gender gap in the GOP versus Democrats, he is 
surprisingly hard right. If yep. he was a more centrist, moderate conservative, I, I would think that he would be the front runner for for getting elected in the general election. Well, and we'll and we'll see, right? You know, one way this could play out um, is that people sour on Bush, and then you'll see Rubio maybe move a little bit to the the center, despite right. what he said recently about. Abortion, no exceptions for rape, incest, life of the mother. Like, like you don't hear that from mainstream candidates the past 20 years. Maybe no, and he is pretty. And there are fiscal systems, too, that try and quantify how conservative people uh -huh. are. And, and Rubio is very conservative. I mean, he's um, really far out the on GOP the But the GOP is a very conservative right. party, right? So relative uh, to the other 17 people. He's who, about in the middle of the GOP field, but he would be, you know, 20 years ago considered very conservative. Right. Um, but, you know- um, you can who's, argue, more, though, if, who's more to the right of Rubio? So Walker, probably. Okay. Um, you know, Walker is um, far enough to the right where he might kind of compete for votes with um, with Ted Cruz. All right. Well, and Ben Carlson for that and matter. And Ben Carson for that matter, mm -hmm. right? Um, which, you know, maybe isn't a good place to be. There is going to be some support for candidates like those, I think, mm -hmm. um, throughout the race. What's interesting about Trump is that um, he's really difficult to peg ideologically he's kind of all over the place and his support too is all over the place right people would assume always oh, capturing tea party voters not true right that 20 oh, really that 20 or 25 percent coalition he has is drawn uh -huh. from all different kind of ideological parts of the gop in what's one reason i'm skeptical about him is that it's also drawn from people who don't traditionally turn out and vote in primaries right huh. that's a lot of people would say you know i like that kind of six it to the establishment and six it to the media, right? They're fascinated by him. You know, does that translate into driving to the Iowa caucus in the snow when you've never voted before? You know, we don't know. There's some reason to be skeptical of that. Um, but Trump is, you know, if you kind of, if you average out his policy positions, then they're kind of, you know, fairly typical right of center. But that means you have some things that are like radical Tea Party and some things that are like practically like socialist, Single right? Payer. Yeah. And that, it kind of averages I out. I you weird... said that. That was amazing. <laughs> um, and that is interesting. I mean, you know, there was some article I read today about um, how, um, so that was smart, uh, about how usually a, a candidate is so constrained, right? And these disagreements. I remember in 2008, the Democrats on, on health care, right? Democrats had huge fights right. about, you know, did Obama have a, a, a employee mandate in his health care bill or a mandate and Hillary didn't? I mean, these are, you know, pretty minor differences, whereas Trump is saying, I'm not going to play by those constraints where you can be, you know, an 8.2 or an 8.5 on something, right? I'm just going to be all over the place. Mm -hmm. And that's how a lot of real people think, too, right? Um Right, their, their views aren't necessarily internally consistent. So, so well, I would I would dispute that. Like, I think, you know, I don't think the party's views are that internally consistent either. Like, I'm not sure why, you know, policy, your views on taxation and gay marriage and um, and Uber and the war in right. Iraq should be correlated with one another that much. But, you know, certainly, um, you know, these views coalesce into parties and people often, um, you know, are Democrats or Republicans for like one or two big issues, and they kind of say, you know what, it's a lot easier to kind of agree with the party on everything, right? So I, I kind of disagree with the idea that, oh, um, Trump's views are more incoherent, because I don't think anyone's views are all that coherent oh, yeah. <laughs> necessarily, right? So, but definitely it's it's maps differently than 
any other candidates would. So at this point, given all the changes, well, let's let's use gay marriage as an example. Yeah. The Supreme Court has ruled. I thought Kasich's answer was, and by the way, this is a kiss of death. If I like you in a Republican right. primary, yeah. <laughs> you're done. Last year, I thought last last election, I'm like, this Huntsman guy seems pretty yeah. Toast. That's the kiss of death. <laughs> I, I thought Kasich's answer was, oh, that's who the responsible adults on the stage is. It's him. So, you know, he's not. Gonna and run. a lot of people who are running Kasich's campaign ran mm-hmm. Huntsman's campaign. Um, same people? It's a lot of the same people. Yeah. yeah well, and their, their strategy is, you know, you want to kind of appeal to to the media. So the first debate was interesting in that, um, you know, the media spin was that Kasich had done really well. Right. And I thought he did pretty well. I personally liked him, but I'm somewhere probably near you on the political spectrum. I don't know, right? Right. Um, Socially but, progressive, a little, a little fiscally conservative. Sure. And and to me, I I've assumed the abortion issue has been settled. I can't believe that's still ongoing. And and now it looks like the question of of marriage equality is settled. And the only one on the stage who seemed willing to say that was Kasich. But if you looked at uh, Google searches, which mm-hmm. they now release data in real time. Mm-hmm. Ben Carson was doing really well. People were interested in him. Really, right? Carly he Fiorina. came across as much less crazy than I expected. Not that that's saying anything. He was pretty. He was pretty uh, toned down, toned down, and mellow. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought that worked okay, right? Um, yeah, for sure. What, and he's now, gaining the polls a little bit. So let's talk about Carly Fiorina, who did really well at the children's table. Some sure. people have derisively called it, but I know her. As a horrible CEO, yeah. oversaw one of the worst mergers in technology history. You know, HP and Compaq is described like AOL Time Warner. It was just a disaster. And she's laid off. <laughs> I don't remember the number. 100,000 people, some huge number. Can she really be a credible candidate given that background? She She's managed to fail. And again, send your hate email to NateSilver at ESPN.com. <laughs> but I, I think she's failed upwards, and I'm wholly unimpressed with her as a candidate um, or so as think, a as a CEO, as a corporate so executive. I, I thought she did well in um, in the debate, in the JV debate. It was very mm-hmm. self-possessed and kind of right. understood the balance between you don't want to sound like a wingnut, but you want to make sure that you're memorable on that stage. People are kind of right. half paying attention. You know, I know. I think it's a little bit premature. I think she's um, she's not quite yet at the point where you're going to see a lot of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's, uh, you know, this is one of the things about comparing like Hillary and Bernie Sanders, right? You know, if you compare a candidate who has um, received a lot of scrutiny from the media, from other members of their party, from the other party versus one who hasn't, it's a really apples to oranges comparison, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, Sophia Arena has not yet been through that scrutiny phase, right? Um, if she keeps doing well, then her reward is that she'll she'll then endure that, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's not, I don't know, I would think she would have more chance of being the nominee than Trump, maybe? You'd have to think about that. Really? What um, about her as a vice presidential candidate? If Hillary is the nominee, put a woman on the ticket, I would imagine that would offset... Um, some of the gender gap that is inherent with Hillary running. Sure, although women don't necessarily um, support women who aren't good on on quote unquote women's issues, right? I mm-hmm. mean, certainly not every woman is pro-choice, right? But you know, but many are. But but many are right. Um, and so you know, Republican women might have a more difficult time of it than right. than Democratic women would. Huh. And what uh, since uh, we're talking about Carly. She kind of um, 
caught some positive attention for her comments about the whole Megyn Kelly Fox thing. Yeah. How, how does that play into this? Uh, this is one thing that I, uh, one bad prediction we've made, right? I kind of thought that, boy, when um, when Fox News started taking on Trump, that they, Fox they News- They were hammering yeah, him. Yeah, that Fox News wouldn't back down, and they did back down. Right? Really, really quickly, too. <laughs> it, I, I mean, so you sound as surprised as I was. Yeah, I was surprised because I kind of thought that, but look, Fox News, like any major media organization, is a complicated place, right? Sure. Um, you know, they want ratings and attention on the one hand. They, mm-hmm. uh, on the other hand, you know, um, have some influence in Republican politics. Some. You know, on the th- some, yeah. <laughs> on the third hand, you know, you have lots of individual producers, some of whom are awesome journalists and some of whom are not. And, you know, it's a complicated place. But, um, but you know, it was funny how explicit Trump was about the quid pro quo. Like, I got you terrific ratings, right, and made you all this money, and you're giving me this, right? And I'm like, yeah, you have a point, you know? And um, you know, it was amazing. I, I thought Fox did a great job on the on the debate. I I watched about an hour of it, maybe a little more. And at that point, you know, it it started, you know, it, it's when you're watching a game and it looks like a blowout. And all right, I don't need to watch the stay for the fourth quarter. That's kind of yeah. how. But it, it seemed really interesting. The, the one name we didn't mention, um, who I could give you a whole laundry list of reasons why he's terrible and I don't like him, but I thought Chris Christie did a really good job at the debate. So the Christie story is kind of fascinating. We've been on um, on the Chris Christie is toast bandwagon. I recall for a long time before it was cool. Um, <laughs> you know, in part because he's a guy who the party wants a candidate who's conservative oh. but also reliable, right? And right. I think Christie is seen as a guy who's not that reliable. He's no longer very popular with independent voters, but but who knows? Nor, nor I mean, in his own state. I, I almost think everyone at the office disagrees with this, right? I think it would almost help Christie if um, if he dropped out of the top 10 and then had the stage to himself at the next JV debate, right? right. And could be alpha male and totally dominate. I don't think Christie has is very likely at all to win the nomination, mm-hmm. but he's a guy who could have a surge, right? And the media sure. the media is fascinated by Christie. He's right? a fascinating guy. He's great on his feet. I thought he I thought he hurt Rand Paul. I mean, yeah. he really came at him hard. And then So there's guys who, you know, there's Christie, Ben Carson, Ted Cruz, the three C's, you know, they're all in the category of candidates who I think could be the next candidate who searches, but probably couldn't win the nomination. Right. Whereas Rubio Kasich kind of slower and steadier. I think Rubio right. is the one candidate where you get the sense that he's not trying to win the nomination in August, which is probably a really smart thing right. to do. Right. My, my general impression of him is that he's a little young, he's a little green. Some of the other candidates that compared him to some guy at this term in his first Senate term named Barack Obama, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I find amusing. But you could see there's a political... Um, uh, there's a, a wind at his back that that could help him if not this, uh, not 2016, then certainly 2020. Yeah, though I think one thing a lot of um, Republicans have learned is that, um, and a lot of Kents have learned is that you know there's no time like today, right? You know, I'm sure a lot of candidates this year, um, where you know Rick Perry, who was someone who had one of the better chances to beat Romney until he kind of imploded, right? Mm-hmm. You know. He was not in the top 10. Rick Santorum, who kind of ostensibly finished in second place, was not in the top 10. So there have to be a lot of these candidates now who are kicking themselves and saying, you know what, um, Romney, a little bit underrated as candidate maybe, but boy, you know, 
it was a much easier nomination to win in 2012 and probably kicking themselves for not having run four years why, ago. Why do you say under-nominated as a candidate in 2012? I'm curious about that. Because in the end, it's hard to beat an incumbent president. Um, the economy improved to the point where it was okay. <laughs> right? I, I would take um, the other side <clears throat> of the argument and say when Romney was running against Obama, you had a very unpopular, or at least it appeared to be unpopular, um, Obamacare. It's since turned out to be quite yeah, successful. Yeah. But here's a guy who put Obamacare, only it was Romney Care in his state, and the weakest economy, the weakest recovery you'd seen in half a century. I, I, I don't think could- it was a gimme, but like, look, the average elected incumbent president wins his second term by by eight percentage points in the popular mm-hmm. vote. And Obama won by four, 3.8. Mm. Or something, right? So Obama kind of did underperform, but he, um, it was a huge electoral college blowout, wasn't it? It was a so the electoral college can make a, it's kind of designed that way to make a relatively small edge in the popular vote be bigger mm-hmm. um, in the electoral college, right? Um, and probably I think his campaign helped at the margin in some of the swing states too. Sure, um, but I don't know. I mean, um, <clears throat> you know, I don't think Romney ran a terrific campaign. I think he was not a disaster though either. And I think people, um, you know, again, you go back to the fact that historically incumbent presidents are reelected 70% of the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was just one of those. And there are a lot of subtle ways like going into like, um, a college football stadium or something, right. Um, Michigan stadium where, um, at least, at least it used to be university of Michigan was tough to, to beat there. And it man- kind of manifests itself in all sorts of Subtle ways you get better officiating. You know the playing surface right. a little bit better, a little bit better under pressure. It's tough to beat an incumbent president. And I'm not saying Romney was the most terrific nominee, but these guys get kind of tarnished with the loser brush. Or John Kerry is another one where he lost by by two points. You know, people I right, think have right in the middle of a, of an active war, which unusual. But at, to the, see. at the time, um, that war was somewhat popular, right? Where the plurality of Americans okay. in '04, right? Six months later, different. Six months later, I think um, Bush might have lost that election. It was really close, but um, but you know, at the time, the economy was had recovered from a, a mild recession um, and looked not bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you had a war that was becoming less and less popular. But um, but it's easy to have hindsight bias now, right? Sure. And there are models. You know, part of it too. There are models that look at factors like the economy measured in various ways. You know. War measured in various ways, incumbency, and most of them said, "Oh, you know, Kerry should lose by by several points," and you know he did about as well. I, as I didn't realize thought. it was that close. I thought Kerry had lost much more uh, substantially. I think Democrats, because you did have this kind of tide shifting in how Iraq was perceived and the mm-hmm. Bush presidency was perceived, right? Um, and I think you had Democrats kind of saying, "Boy, how can we not win this?" Election, and that's kind of parallel to 2012. Really, I didn't hear a lot of Democrats saying that to me. I thought it was sitting president, 9/11, still very fresh in memory. You're, you're the old expression I kept hearing was, "You don't change horses midstream." You're in the middle of an active war, and the tendency is to reelect the incumbent in the middle of an active war. Is that is that overstating the the circumstances? Well, war it depends on if it's a popular war or an unpopular war, right? And Iraq was going from a war that was initially very popular. Uh, to one that wasn't. And as easy as amazing as it sounds like it's easy to forget the impact of September 11th. Sure. Um, you know, and that still 
cast a real shadow on the way the race was Absolutely. was contested too. So think about Vietnam in '72. Nixon got reelected. That was a terribly unpopular war by '72. Yeah. By the late '60s, it was unpopular. But there just seems to be a sense that's not. Well, '72 to... is one of those cases where the economy was actually not so bad in '72. Right. Um, but that is a case where the Democrats blew any chance they had by nominating McGovern in this convention where it went until three in the morning before the he gave convention. a speech and they picked a VP who they had to then veto. Right. I mean, that was, mm. you know, so, um, so people should remember that 72 campaign. Cause it means like, you know, the establishment doesn't always win. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this kind of, you know, 5% chance empirically that, um, that they don't. Um, but the odds are, are, you know, certainly in Hillary Clinton's favor, uh, certainly against someone like, like Donald Trump, right? Where you know, and maybe at the party, the GOP is weaker than it once was, but they're going to fight till their dying embers to not nominate Donald Trump. He's kind of a trifecta of things that um, that they wouldn't like. Number one, he's not very popular with independent voters. Mm-hmm. Um, people talk about how, oh, you know, kind of Trump is extremely he's a new populism. He's taking over the country. Well, you know, he is really awful favorability ratings with the electorate as a whole, about 65% negative, 30% really? positive, right? Um, number two, he's not all that conservative. And number three, you don't know what you're going to get with him, right? Um, right. So, you know, those are kind of the three criteria that the party would say, boy, you know, Makes this, could it be tough. A, this could be a real disaster. And and yeah. So gun to the head today, you're, you, are you looking at Hillary Bush or is it Clinton Bush or is it Clinton somebody else? I mean, you know, I kind of think um, on the GP side, it's about 25% Rubio, 25% Bush, 25% Walker, and 25% other, right? Really? Where, That's yeah. fascinating. I wouldn't have thought- Maybe I, I'd diminish Walker's chances a bit. He's struggled in the polls after the debate somewhat. He, um, uh, unless he really comes back in the next <clears throat> debate. He he seemed kind of soft and not ready for prime time. And that was some reputation he had, is that this guy is- is does fine one on one, but maybe he has trouble standing out a little bit. At the same time, you know, um, he's leading the Iowa polls, or at least as a leading non-Trump candidate, depending on what poll <laughs> you look at, right? And he kind of is. That's from a new category, yeah, leading non-Trump candidate. But you do almost have to pull Trump. It's a little bit how, uh, in a weird way, with um, Ron Paul in 2012, sure. right, where Ron Paul was going to get 20 percent of the vote. No matter what. Iowa. And if the vote were divided evenly enough among other candidates, then um, then that might have been enough to, to win. He came pretty close. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, but being the leading non-Trump candidate, I mean, the term front runner is used um, sometimes in horse racing for a horse that uh, jumps out to really quickly, but is not going to have the stamina stamina to go the distance. Right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you call Trump a front runner, I kind of think in that more ironic sense, it might be more worthwhile. But he could also hold on to 20% and then not really grow from there. There are a lot of guys that, um, you know, again, Pat Robertson, Pat Buchanan, Mm -hmm. Paul, Huckabee, Santorum, right? Um, You know, you can win Iowa in a field with 17 candidates with 20, 25%. Doesn't mean mean a lot. You know, one pollster recently said, um, okay, let's just take this down to three candidates. Um, You know, Trump, Walker, and Bush, I think it was. Right. And, Trump barely gained anything, whereas Walker and Rubio pick up support from the Makes sense. Christie's and and the Fiorinas and the whatnot, right? right. Um, and so as that field consolidates, right, then Trump will have trouble. Or maybe it won't consolidate, but then you're going to have, like, no one with a plurality of mm-hmm. delegates. Um, this is the scenario that journalists dream of. 
Um, brokered convention, madness. Brokered convention, or at least, you know, maybe you resolve it before the convention, but and there's a lot of backroom dealing. Trump's not going to benefit from that because the party establishment For sure. hates his guts, right? right. So, um, <laughs> you know, but the one thing that would make me more bullish about Trump's chances is you hear he's actually investing in staff in Iowa, and right? Is he or is he not? You never know. It's, there's a lot of smoke right. and mirrors with any candidate at this stage of the race. Um, and also you can invest in something and not do a good job of it, right? But, you know, um, you know, again, the one candidate who defied the establishment and won was McGovern. Mm-hmm. 72 a long time ago very different candidate than trump very different sure. era um but you know it wasn't just uh he got lucky he had lots of grassroots support he understood how to win caucuses he understood the delegate rules he understood you know party conventions and how the delegates that are allocated at the caucus can change later on right um you know so if he if trump has that side of the operation really good logistics understands the rules and has a, has, a lot, has a lot of lawyers willing to litigate when the GOP tries to change the rules, then, then you know, maybe I'd make his odds 6% instead of 2%. Um, but still single digits. Yeah, I think so. Huh. Because I was, the, the last political question I wanted to ask you was, what happens in a head-to-head between Trump and Clinton? Um, I think Clinton wins 38 states or something. I don't oh, know. really? Yeah. It's, it's that... So, so Trump's core audience is his core audience. He's got those folks, but as other candidates drop out of the race, he's not going to necessarily attract those those voters. No, he's he's not that popular, right? I mean, you know, again, his kind of unfavorable ratings. People worry about Hillary because she's now like five points. It's like you know forty eight to forty two or something now, right. right? With Trump, it's like sixty five to to thirty. He is not very popular apart from um, apart from you know a certain number of of Republicans. Um, of course, he could also run as an independent. Is that likely to happen or is that just <laughs> a, a lot of noise? I mean, ordinarily you'd say no, but I think Donald Trump doesn't like to hear no for an answer, right? And you could mm-hmm. certainly decide, um, you know, I'm having too much fun, right? Right. Um, and it's going to be great for whatever my next show is. I'm going to get It's going to be great, ratings. right? And he seems like he's a guy who wouldn't mind spiting people. You know, it's right. time to, again, it's not even clear that he's really a Republican, right? So maybe right. it's like ordinarily a Republican would say, you know, I, at the end of the day, I owe an oath of loyalty to my party, right? Trump might say, you know, I don't care if it's Jeb Bush or Clinton, right, or Rubio or Clinton. You know, it's all the same difference to, to me, right? right. Um, I'm still all over the place, so <clears throat> so I don't know, you know? Um, There's, you know. There was a story out some time ago that last year Trump spoke to Clinton and um, yeah. he was encouraged to run or or- he wasn't discouraged from running or something like that. <laughs> and the conspiracy nuts all went crazy about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's quite a conspiracy, but you, you clearly, you have a guy who's running as a Republican who does not care about the long-term best interests of the Republican Party right. at all, right? Um, you know, He's a potential that's, spoiler. That's very different. And, and even though I think he's very unlikely to win the nomination, the chance he can make it difficult for the GOP to nominate a candidate difficult for them to coordinate a message and the chance I still think is low, but not negligible that he would run as an independent. Right. Mm. So I think he's, um, mostly bad news for the GOP. I was trying to make, I always want to make my own contrarian case, right? Cause right. he's generating a lot of enthusiasm and where else gets to look reasonable as compared to him. But you know, he certainly but, brought a lot of excitement to the race that but, probably yeah. wouldn't be here August. But what I'd say is year. Trump can be a, a problem for the GOP, even if he's very unlikely to, to win. Huh, right. Quite fascinating. So let me shift gears on you and talk a little bit 
about you and some other aspects. You know, we we quickly went over your background on the on the radio portion. Um, prior to Pakoda, there was a quote of yours that I really liked. You you were working at uh, KPMG in Chicago, and someone had once asked you, "What's your biggest regret in life?" And you said, "Spending four years of my life in a job I didn't like." Yeah, is, is that accurate? Is that a true? Uh, Statement, so I've been, true, true, true quote. I've been lucky enough. And so whether you work, spend half your time working or, mm-hmm. you know, 80% of your middleman with on work. And I would bet listeners of the show are somewhere higher than 50% on the spectrum of how much energy they devote sure. to work. Um, you know, it's time you can't get back really. And even though the day to day can be a grind at any job, just to have a job where you fundamentally are challenged intellectually, where you, uh, where you enjoy yourself, where you have ownership of the work. Where you like the people I work, you work with. I did like my colleagues at KPMG. That was not the issue at all, right? But, um, but I have a really great team I work with now. I mean, that's you know, that's really important, to to say the least. And then, and then you quit KPMG and you start playing poker. Yeah. How did how did that work out? Um. So there was kind of a poker boom, which I would call more of a poker bubble. Okay. Really, in the mid two thousand. So. Uh, so my buddy at KPMG is like, hey, we want to get a game going. And I'm like, I'm really competitive. So I started practicing online at like Yahoo where you play for free. And I'm right. like, you can't really play for poker without right. without real money, right? So some online site was like, deposit 25 bucks and you can withdraw it. And it was like basically free money, right? Of course, mm-hmm. I got kind of hooked and started staying up all night and playing poker. And at the time, you know, I played a little bit in college. I was a couple of years out of college at that point. And mm-hmm. You know, the quality of play was really poor and just kind of using a very basic ABC strategy. You could make a little bit of money if you started to, you know, um, bluff a little bit and be a little bit more aggressive. You could do even better than that. So, but yeah, I kind of made my living mostly playing poker for a couple of years. So you did pretty well, in other words. I made a um, couple hundred thousand and then lost some of it, but enough that, you know, it was a very cool experience. But ultimately, it was like, you know, it's kind of like the proverbial. Hundred dollar bills sitting on the ground. It kind of dried up once people realized sure. that that you there's know. money to be made. It got arbitraged away. Yeah, that's the the famous quote. If if there ever was a magic formula, it would eventually be whittled away as everybody started using the formula. At least in the stock market, that's uh that that's how that works. Let's talk a little bit about hunches. Yeah. All right. And um, I, I don't know if if Malcolm Gladwell is the best person to use as an example for that. And I think he sort of backtracked on his, uh, on some of his early earlier statements. But when you look at the work he's done with outliers, that after you've done something for 10,000 hours or some ungodly yeah. decade amount of time, you know enough of your – you subconsciously recognize the statistical spread, uh, the, the, the probable outcomes that you could select the best just out of – out of habit, how do you um, how do you look at that sort of approach of intuition or hunches or, or what have you? I mean, I'm suspicious of the ten thousand hour hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but one experience that's pretty new for me now is that now we have a whole bunch of employees, not a whole bunch, but um, you know, two dozen at five thirty eight, and I often work with our our younger writers and analysts on on a problem, and um, you do see the benefit of experience there, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're developing some little model or formula to address like a question in baseball, right? And even though the younger writer I might work with is like super smart, as smart as me, um, I've just been doing this now for for 10 or 15 years, right? So I can say, you know what? 
you're unnecessarily complicating the problem there, right? And that's just going to make it hard to explain and make the model overfit is technical term. Or mm -hmm. you know what? Oh, here. You in know. other words, overfit meaning it's geared towards what happened previously and you're making it Yeah, it's like too, too rigid focused. a mask, right? right? Or conversely, like, you know what? You're making an approximation here that's just way too clumsy, right? And you're mm -hmm. missing the whole gist of the problem we're trying to solve here, right? Like that intuition for kind of which method works, um, you know, that's built from experience, I think. But, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's, you know, again, intuition kind of makes it seem like you're not spending much time thinking about the problem. It's kind of like you've invested that time before in developing some some expertise, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I've softened on that a little bit. Um, but the problem is that, you know, um, there are very many systems like politics, for example, where kind of it's all the Daniel Kahneman system one versus system sure. two type of thinking where the instinctual reaction is to overreact to things, right? And to say, oh, here's a new poll that came out that shows um, Bernie Sanders ahead of Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. This is really dramatic. And all my friends are talking about this poll, right? And you kind of ignore the fact that there have been five other polls in New Hampshire in the past two weeks that show Clinton ahead and also that New Hampshire is one state and polls in every other state so show Clinton ahead, right? And that this happens kind of in every election cycle. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very useful to kind of, I think, slow down and, and not overreact. We, things. In the market, we call that the recency effect, where yeah. you have this long series of, uh, of of long data series and a trend supporting it, and then you'll get something within a statistical range of, of possibilities, but that's off trend. And that's so much of, you know, we aren't trying to <clears throat> predict what the polls will say tomorrow, right? You know, there are a lot of people who want to know kind of what's the market going to do today, right? And we're kind of like, well, you know, here's your kind of not 10-year time horizon, right, but mm -hmm. here's your six-month time horizon, right, that we still think Hillary Clinton's very likely to be the Democratic nominee, that we're not sure who the GOP nominee will be, but we'd be short Trump stock, <laughs> as right. it were, right? Um, it also helps to, to quantify these things to some extent, too. So in some sense, it's kind of like, um, if you ask me, what's your chance of Trump winning? We don't have a model yet. We probably will at some point, mm -hmm. right? But, you know, winning when the I nomination, say, when winning the whole winning the nomination, match. I say, oh, it's two percent. I mm -hmm. mean, it's kind of a spitballed estimate, but it's useful to have to put at least the order of magnitude right. on the table. You know, so there's I think, a small chance, a yeah, small non-zero chance because there are journalists who will say, you know, write an article and say, oh, of course, Trump is unlikely to win. But here are all the reasons he has momentum, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, and if you read that article, the sense you might get is that, you know, he's got a pretty decent shot. Right. You know, but if you actually kind of actually had them say. We think the chance is about 2% or say 0 to 5%, at least the order of magnitude, right? And that would be useful, right? You know, because in some sense, if we say there are a lot of articles that are like, oh, you know, no one gives Bernie a chance, but but he could win. It's like, I give him a chance, you know, 5% or whatever. A and one in 20 chance isn't yeah, a great chance to but win. But the, the journalist or pundit who writes a column saying, you know, Hillary's not inevitable. I mean, in a literal sense, I agree with that. It's not 100%. It's not quite close up to 100% to say it's a rounding error, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's pretty low. And to actually say, is there a real beef here or not? You know, my view is at 538, if we think a candidate has an 85% chance of winning, then most of our coverage should reflect the reasons why she probably will win. And occasionally we would have a piece saying that, Here's something for her to be really worried about, right? Mm -hmm. The ratio in the mainstream media is like almost the reverse, right? Where it's like there are so many reasons why the 15% might come through and there's very little, just a perfunctory reminder that, oh, by the way, 
she's leading in the national polls by 30 points and no candidate's ever done that before. Right. Right. You know, without being nominated. Right. You know, so the ratio is a little bit askew, even though I'm not sure there would really be a beef if I if I, you know, sat down with a columnist that I read a sarcastic tweet about. Right. You know, he or she might agree that, yeah, Bernie Sanders chances are, you know, five percent or 10 percent. It's just kind of in, you know, I want the the thrust and the kind of tone of the articles we write to kind of reflect that reality, not just as a caveat in the fifth paragraph. The, the, that's the problem with narrative and the problem with human yeah. speech, which developed around a time when there was no written language, that narratives are more memorable, the more exciting and the greater the horse race. What you give up in accuracy, you gain in page views. And that seems to be my gross uh, reduction. It seems observing. like there's some <clears throat> reduction that can can occur. You know, we're lucky in the sense that uh, kind of because everyone else is saying one thing, then we can get a lot of attention by kind of saying, no, this is probably pretty wrong. You know, but, you know, I think there and is stick also to something mathematically accurate. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think there is also there is also group think that sets in apart from just the page view. Meaning everybody think, on the same bus hearing the same nonsense and having and that's, a right. And that's somewhat literally true. So I went like to, literally. Yeah. So I went to New Hampshire uh, for a week or so in 2012, right? And mm-hmm. for the first time in my life, I went to um, a presidential debate, one of the primary debates, right? Right. And I kind of thought, oh, you go to the debate and you have a credential and you're in the debating hall. You can kind of see how things play in the room. No. Instead, you're herded in this giant gymnasium right. with 2,000 other journalists all checking one another's Twitter feeds in real time. It's like <laughs> the literal definition of groupthink being being manufactured. Um, and so the, I, I want to emphasize that line, the literal definition <laughs> of groupthink being manufactured. And so we talk about kind of the conventional wisdom. You know, sometimes in markets, you embody the conventional wisdom with what the market price is, right? But there's mm-hmm. some separation. You know, if you look at... Um, I mentioned there are betting markets where you can go and um, buy stocks, so to speak, in Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. Right. And they have not seen Clinton's odds change very much, right? Whereas the tenor of the news coverage has changed quite a bit. That, that That's fascinating. I'm going to shift gears on you again. Um, so who are your early mentors? The, you you kind of come out of Chicago and you create or at least – amplify a, a form of statistical analysis, apply it to baseball, apply it to, to um, campaigns and elections. Who who motivated this? I mean, you know, Bill James, kind of the godfather of stuff sure. in baseball, and in terms of not just having the statistical chops, but being able to communicate it to a wide audience and kind of ask essential questions about, about baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I looked up some of the guys that work with the baseball prospectus, but I'm, I'm pretty self-motivated on the whole, <laughs> you I found think, your way right? into this basically. Hey, here's something that's not being done right, and here's a better way to do. It. Yeah, like boy, I think you know, I think the coverage I watched on TV during 2007 was very frustrating, and so, um, so boy, I'm going to have to do it myself, right? You know, I kind of hey, if no one else is going to do it right, you might as well step up. And that's and a challenge for me now, right? Where I have a bunch of great people I'm working with, right? And it's kind of like. You know, how can I figure out not to do everything <laughs> myself? Well, that, it's a challenge learning how to delegate that stuff. Let, yeah. Let's, you mentioned um, Bill James. Let's talk about books. So obviously, uh, Kahneman's book, very influential to thinking about thinking. What other books have really uh, either inspired you <laughs> or you've really enjoyed fiction, nonfiction, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's a um, very wonky book called 
uh, by Phil Tetlock, who's professor at sure. Morton. New book coming out. And new book coming too. out soon, right? It was called Expert Political Judgment, I think, yep. or Expert Political that's Forecasting. That's exactly right. So that's a good kind of totemic book about about forecasting. but um, And how essentially know, I mean, like, the experts like, are indistinguishable from a random person in, in public when it comes yeah. to making these predictions and forecasts a year out. Um, they're like barely even better than undergraduates, I think was the most. <laughs> Amazing. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know. In terms of uh, storytelling, I think Michael Lewis is a terrific storyteller. I guess my answers are quite conventional and, and boring here. Did, really. did you ever read uh, James Glick's The Information? I've read parts of it. Yeah, dude, that um, is so up your alley. I will check. I, you know, I love his stuff. He, you want to talk wonky? So my undergraduate was applied math and physics before I switched to poli sci, and so his book. I found him because of the book Chaos Making of a Science, and it's you know way into the weeds on physics, but few people can take hard science and make it a narrative that's interesting. I read that on a beach one summer and found it absolute the information just absolute fascinating diatribe on the history of uh, of information science. Yeah, I mean, I think all these things are you know kind of the history of knowledge, right? But I don't know, mm-hmm. I you know, to be honest, uh, I travel quite a bit and I used to catch up reading on planes, and now that I have twenty five people to manage and there's internet connections on the planes and stuff like that, my so you're working on my reading for pleasure has has declined, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ne- a related question, what other mathematicians or statisticians either influenced you or influenced your approach to looking at at what you do? T- you mentioned Tetlock, anybody who's really a political scientist. Yeah. Anybody else really leap out? Uh, I mean, there are a couple of guys at Columbia whose names might not be familiar, but, you know, Andrew Gelman's a guy there, Bob Erickson, who are political scientists. Mm-hmm. Um who have studied elections for a long time and and were helpful, but you know, um, you know, I, I like I said, I'm pretty self-taught for for the most part. I um, picture you as a lonely mathematician, light burning in the window and uh, working by yourself. Is is that kind of how this all came about? Sort of. It's different. I mean, you know, I live with a partner and I manage people at work, right? So I don't have as much um, much alone time as <laughs> as, as the old might, days. As the old days, right? Um, you know, I'm one of those people who's kind of very much in the middle of the extroversion introversion curve. I sure. can go, I can go crazy on either extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but you know, yeah, some of this pursuit is pretty, pretty solitary inherently. I think, right? Um, sure, you're thinking about what the 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 status quo is doing wrong, right? And trying to come up with ways of thinking about it that makes more sense and has. Uh, more probative value, more statistical yeah, validity. It seems like if you kind of start, you know, so I think about this Clinton versus Sanders thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, before the campaign b- began, if you kind of had told yourself, well, you know what? No matter what happens, there's going to be a strong incentive for for the media to make it seem like the race is really competitive and it'll be exceptionally clever in um in ways, almost all this is unconscious, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're deliberately putting their finger right. on the scale, right? Well, you're bored. They're, they're doing the same thing every day. You're bored. Doing the same, there are so many polls, so many indicators to look at, so many ways you can, um, in this very large constellation of information, right? So mm-hmm. many ways you can draw threads together that inevitably you'll see some stories written about how, quote unquote, unexpectedly, you know, Bernie Sanders is doing is doing well, right? 
and you can kind of brace yourself for that in in the abstract. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of hard to do that when you're confronted with it. Another example is that almost every year there are some exceptions. Um, a candidate gets a boost in the polls after the convention, right? Sure. So the bump. Rubio, Bush, Walker, whomever, Trump, <laughs> um, <laughs> will have his convention, uh, get a five point bump in the polls, and it'll fade, right? And this is, you know, pretty predictable. Um, it's going to be really hard when a Democrat's experiencing that not to think it's something new and different this time. And the press will invent all types of reasons why, you know, this time is different and it it probably won't be, you know, debates can produce little bumps too, but it's kind of like you're about to go on, on a roller coaster and you can kind of, um, you can say, well, I know we're going to go up this hill and then come down <laughs> it really fast. Right. Click, 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 click. Wee. And okay. there's an ability to it, but you know, it doesn't, you can still kind of suspend your disbelief. And of course, if you're on a roller coaster, you want to suspend your disbelief and have a lot of fun with it. Right. But you know, my job as someone who covers campaigns, someone who's more, Empirical, but also critical is to kind of stay at a distance and say, you know what, I know you guys think that this Trump thing is new and different. And by the way, it probably won't evaporate tomorrow, right? It might take some time, but um, the odds of a guy who basically isn't a Republican being nominated by the Republican Party is pretty darn low. So on a related note, I have to share a funny story with you. So we just this past weekend, we we had family members in from Chicago and I remember in 08, them saying, I know you think Hillary is going to be coronated, but this Barack guy who yeah. we've seen in town for years, don't underestimate him. He's He's got something. And he surprises Hillary. He gets the nomination. And then later in the year, as, as the election moved forward, I want to say August, September, October of 08, um, my sister-in-law... We we just had this conversation this week, and I mentioned uh, I'm going to be seeing Nate Silver on Monday. She goes, oh, he made my 08 so much better. <laughs> I, I, why? She goes, well, I really thought uh, there were big uh, Obama supporters. I really thought he was going to lose, but every time – I'm sorry, in 2012, every time they went to 538, they said you were reassuring that here's where we are statistically, and while it's not impossible – for him to lose, you know, the Electoral College makes it really hard for Mitt Romney to garner 270 votes. And and here's the likely. And she said it was a despite the media drumbeat, despite how yeah. how close this was. So so she credits you for making her 2012 much better. And I, I get that comment a lot. Really? Um, yeah, that exact kind of sentiment that because you can kind of lose yourself in the media coverage and because. Yeah, it's weird. Like I, um, <clears throat> in our election coverage, we kind of always wind up, um, incentive-wise, we're always kind of rooting for the favorite, which is I'm not that kind of guy, right? I'm like an underdog, unpredictable right. <laughs> kind of guy. Sure. Um, but you know, the media will take a race where one candidate kind of objectively, quote unquote, has a ninety percent chance of winning, mm-hmm. and really, really sell the case that it's neck and neck, right? Um, it's how you sell papers. Yeah, it's how you sell papers. And so I kind of always wind up, um, you know, being the person who says, you know what, this is not that shocking a prediction, but Donald Trump probably not going to be the Republican nominee. Bernie Sanders probably will not be the Democratic nominee. And we will, believe me, one year we'll get one of those things wrong. I mean, we've had cases where um, where in other contexts, sports and whatnot, where 
you know, unlikely things have happened, but, um, but, <clears throat> you know, it can really throw people for, for a loop. Um, but you know, the fact is also in 2014, we had from the very first time we published a forecast, the GOP is favorites to pick up the Senate from, from Democrats. And, right? and a lot of people <laughs> were not remotely close to seeing that. No, no, it really depends on the presidential coattails and it depends on this. Yeah. And people, you know, and you saw it quite a bit of it in in reverse i think like harry reed you know he's, he's like this guy's an idiot he always under said well democrats would do so you, you do get it from from both um, sides from both sides a little bit right i'm not saying this is you know we're not going to burn another hour here i'm not saying the parties are exactly identical but um but you know <clears throat> you would get comments like how did nate silver turn into a republican right it's like my views haven't really changed that much right just like i think you know here's where the polls and the fundamentals point is that you have, you know, in last year's midterms, how quickly we forget, right? That, you know, with this big blowout for the GOP just last year, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, all these states are being fought for in red states and Obama's unpopular and Democratic turnout looks like it might be bad, right? It's not that complicated necessarily. So I would be remiss if I didn't mention unskewedpolls.com. Yeah. <laughs> I, I found that horribly, horribly amusing. Basically... The media is biased. Nate Silver doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. We're going to skew the polls or we're going to unskew the polls and Romney's going to, you know, he's going to run the table. How often does something that blatant, obvious, concerted, that was really like a, yeah. I, how often does that sort of stuff pop up? Oh, no. I mean, it'll be, there'll be versions of that probably on both sides by the time we get to next year right and the more dangerous versions are versions where like you know that guy i've never met him personally maybe he's a nice guy to have a beer with right he seems a little bit <laughs> kind Out of there? screwy in the head right, right. um just just innumerate that, but that's it, his it, problem. it will not be that guy it'll be someone who um has sort of a sophomoric knowledge right. of statistics right who can actually kind of make superficially persuasive arguments for why um why my hypothesis is true and you absolutely will see that and i know there's a market for you know one thing people don't realize about 538 is there are now six or seven websites that do a forecast similar to ours right Mm -hmm. and we're always kind of somewhere in the middle of the consensus which i think is usually a good place to be Um, a consensus of consensus analysis yeah right (laughs) um but there will be someone, let's say we have Rubio with a 70% chance to win the GP nomination. Mm-hmm. And that's where the average is, right, roughly. I can guarantee you there'll be someone who says, no, it's 70-30 Hillary. Um, no, it's 95% Rubio, right? Right. Um, so they look like a genius, even though statistically their their work is So there'll be suspect. someone who looks like, yeah, right? And if there's someone who, um, you know, it's the same problem with, with Wall Street analysts, <laughs> I guess, right? You know, mm-hmm. on average, the person, someone who makes an outlandish forecast will be in first place, even if their median outcome is worse than the person who makes like a more kind of lowercase C conservative forecast. Go- going back to Tetlock and others, when you look at punditry and people go on TV, someone who goes on television and says, you know, I, the future is inherently unknowable. I don't I can't tell you where the Dow will be in one year. Yeah. And someone else says it'll be at 19,750. Not only is that person less likely to be accurate, 
but they're more likely to be believed, and and so that's the inherent. Like I did I did a. Uh... Uh, program for the BBC on the UK mm-hmm. election, and we had some guys we hired, really smart guys, and like everyone, they way underestimated uh, how well uh, Tories would do, right? Mm-hmm. But this BBC program, I was there for a week, and my personal take was like, you know what, this is a really weird election. There are four parties or five parties that are salient, right. and and um, there's not a lot of agreement in the polls, and like, so I was fighting so hard to avoid having to commit to <laughs> to anything. And of course their whole shtick was brilliant genius statistician comes from the United States and wizard, you know, like tells us exactly what's going to happen in the election. So there was, there was tension there, I think, right. right. Where it's like a week of trying not to answer this question. Right. Um, well, the data is uncertain using a methodology that works. The data is uncertain, US. but in the end we published a model on 538 and like everyone else, it blew it. So, right. but you know, um, but yeah, it's a tricky thing to, to do. And that's a much shorter election, and that's a a very different process than in the United States. It's a much shorter election. It's only it's only six weeks, but when you add multiple parties to the race, it gets much more complex, like really fast. Um, but you know, we haven't talked about this. I know we don't have too much more time. But the fact that you know the polls aren't as reliable as they used to be, at least in some non-U.S. context. Sure. So We're, more cell phones, less reliable polls. Yeah, you know. Israel and and Greece and whatnot. We have a Canadian election. We'll see how the polls do there. They've had trouble in some Canadian parliamentary elections and whatnot or provincial elections. Um, but, you know, um, polling is not foolproof either. And that's why it's like, you know, that's why I say we got lucky in part in 2008, 2012. Um, the polls in 2012 were okay. Mm-hmm. But not great, actually. Obama beat his polls by an average of three points. Um, Is that unusual for the victor to have won by that? It's about it's about average. You know, a three point miss is about average. The thing is, though, if you'd had that three point miss in the other direction, then Romney would have won the election, or at least made it really, really close. That's fascinating. All right, I know we only have you for a few more minutes, so let me get to my last two questions. Um, This is the millennial question that that I we talked about earlier. So you've carved out your own kind of unique career by taking a couple of subjects you really liked yeah. and applying it in a in a unique and useful way. What would you what sort of advice would you give to millennials who are just coming out of school now or or whatever <laughs> we want to call this generation? Uh, what sort of career advice would you give the the recent graduating class? I mean, you know, Learn how to code <laughs> if you want to become a journalist, right? That's right. probably more and more important. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, it's a combination, I think, of of working really hard, but um, but not tolerating yourself being bored at work, right? I think that's pretty, that's pretty important. Um, mm-hmm. Ma- makes a lot of sense. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you know, uh, learning to critique the conventional wisdom, including the wisdom that your friends <laughs> might have, right? Um, Did you get a lot of pushback on on what you were doing from from friends and colleagues? No, I mean, they'd always know me as someone who did different things, so I don't think there was ever that much pushback from it exactly, but I, I do worry that we kind of enter a universe now where, um, where it's kind of so easy for an opinion to form on social media or whatnot. There's so much kind of communication and sharing that I think that can be a little bit dangerous, right? You know, mm-hmm. I don't think I'm 37. I don't think 
any 37 year old should say, I have the whole world figure out, you know, certainly not any 27 year old or 17 year old should say, you know, um, you know, my beliefs <laughs> about the world are just the way things are. You know, I think, I think there's, there's that tendency a little bit, um, not just with millennials, but with everyone now, kind of the age of, of social media, you can kind of feel for lack of a better term, kind of smug about your view in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be a dangerous thing. Enough people, there's enough selective perception and enough things around that reinforces your views, especially with the balkanization of the internet that yeah. you, could, you could find applause for just about any opinion on the spectrum. Yeah. It's really easy to, you know, it's part of, part of what Trump's doing is, you know, I told you earlier, he's not actually that popular, but the 25 or 30% of the country that really likes him, you can kind of wallow in their world, right? I mean, Trump is, I'm kind of going on a tangent here. He is incredibly entertaining. For sure. Too, right? Like, so one thing that I think does separate him out from, um, from say, the Herman Cain's, the Michelle Bachman's of five, four years ago is mm -hmm. the guy has real talent for something. Is it politics exactly or showmanship or demagoguery or somewhere in between those three things? I'm not, I'm not quite sure right but you know there's a charisma there he he's hosted or at least he been significant in a television show yeah, for a couple of seasons he thinks on his feet very very fast he has a sense for for theater he can poke the eye i mean you know um i'm he not can't saying teach that sort of stuff that's, no, that's a he's got a natural gift for that i'm not saying i like trump you know i wouldn't vote for him but i love the fact that he had his helicopter around the iowa state fair because it, it's all these rituals that are silly in some ways, right? right. He's going to be like, I want to be the evil villain and just kind of circle my helicopter around the state fairgrounds and like draw everyone's attention, right? And like- um, Was he giving kids helicopter giving rides or something crazy like that? Kids helicopter rides and telling them he's he's Batman, literally, <laughs> right? Um, That's great. So I like people who are willing to defy convention <laughs> a little bit, right? And, and he, you know, certainly, he <clears throat> certainly has done that. But, you know, the reason why we kind of get- end up as being perceived as very anti-Trump. It's just because, you know, we think the media takes this fascinating story and Trump's up, so to speak, the chance he'll actually be nominated by the GOP, right? It, and it's also, a great narrative, but the statistics are unfair. And also the fact that it is August, right? The polls you see in August aren't measuring anything real in a sense, no right? People are hypothetically thinking about a vote they're going to make in six months when half the candidates will have dropped out, right? Right. Um, when they'll have four times as much information. The idea of, oh, you have a national primary, you don't actually you vote kind of one state at a time. And mm -hmm. so, you know, um, <clears throat> some people kind of point um, <clears throat> to Trump's polls as kind of self-evident evidence that he's succeeding, then I'm a little bit suspicious of that. But he certainly is uh, entertaining <laughs> in a way that I think raises some questions about the way campaigns are, are covered, right? To, uh, well, there certainly raises questions about the way they're run, but the coverage is part and parcel of that. The coverage is not not necessarily doing democracy any uh, any favors. I think I mean you know kind of <clears throat> I guess the two grand theses about Trump are that you know kind of Trump reveals what's wrong with the GOP or that he reveals what's wrong with with the media, right? And mm -hmm. kind of being or some combination of both. Yeah, or some combination thereof. I mean, kind of you know kind of an amateur media critic. I kind of lean toward that explanation more, but there's, you know, there's something he's tapping into, I think. I would resist the implication that he's all that popular or that people are responding um, all that literally to the substance of his policy proposals. I think they're responding to 
the affect to the, you know, kind of He's touched a nerve. Yeah, I think that's, I think, and certainly if you look beyond the polls in terms of is he popular or not, do people like him or not, there's no doubt that there is enormous interest mm-hmm. in Donald Trump, right? Um, you know, I think we did ran some metrics from Google, like 60% of the news coverage of the GP campaign has been about Donald Trump. That's amazing. But 70% of the Google searches for the campaign have been about him, so the public is even more obsessed with Wow. <laughs> that, that's um, fascinating. So, you know, you know, that won't translate into support, yeah, I want you to be president, but there certainly is a, a fixation with him that is not purely a media creation. So last question, because uh, I know you have other places to be and I've kept you here for a long time. Um, what do you know about politics, campaigns, sports, statistics today that you wish you knew 15 years ago when you were starting? And you could pick any of those fields <clears throat> to work with. Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, there are technical answers to this. Right? Sure. Like I kind of, I wish That's I, fine. I wish I had... One thing it took me a while to understand that's like really fundamental, but I think it takes other people a while too, is that um, is that a statistical model is built on past data and you're making a big assumption to therefore say the model is predictive, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's true. In baseball, the conditions are so stable that if you build a model that explains the past well, you're kind of by definition usually predicting the future well, right? Mm-hmm. You can extrapolate better yeah. with a, that stable setup than you can perhaps with politics. But in politics, you know, not always true. And you get into areas like finance, right? And there used to be a correlation between which conference won the Super Bowl and how the stock market did, right? Yeah, but that was always... so. I understand. M- my job has always been to point out that's a correlation without a causation and... Whether it's crazy things like the Hindenburg Omen or the Death Cross, my job is to go back and look at these things historically and say, yeah. well, here's the net result of it, and uh, this doesn't work. This this has a strong correlation, but it's a random accident, and here's what we get out of this. Um, but the leap of – you are making a leap of inference. I was going to say leap of faith. That's not really about faith, right? But a leap of inference where you say, okay – I fit a model to past data, therefore I'm predicting things. Like, no, you fit a model to past data, and then there are a lot of factors you have to consider in terms of how well that model will predict going forward, right? Um, so, you know, whenever I see, you know, I think a lot of academics make this mistake, just like mm-hmm. everyone else does, right? But they'll say, you know, I've developed a model to to predict <laughs> campaigns, right? And it perfectly predicts every presidential election. It's like, no, you didn't predict anything, Right. You know, if you publish a model for the first time in 2015 and you say, I perfectly predicted all 52 presidential elections, however many there are in the past, like, no, your record is zero for zero. <laughs> you so forfeited far. what took- not Not 52 for 52. That, that was my beef with uh, Anthony Robbins' model that was heavy on gold, heavy on bonds after a 10-year gold bull market and a 30-year yeah. bond bull market, both of which were unlikely to continue going forward. It was that overfitting- Predicting the past as opposed to looking forward. Um, you know, and the whole question I'm fascinated by is kind of you have this um, tension between the fact that on the one hand, um, you know, the consensus is usually better than an individual forecast. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to beat the market when there's For a sure. robust market, you know. On the other hand, you know, understanding that there's groupthink and that everyone can kind of be delusional together and that tension I'm kind of I'm kind of fascinated by 
as as we all are. Yeah. Nate, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Definitely. This this has been really just an absolutely fascinating conversation. We've been speaking with Nate Silver of 538. If you enjoyed this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes and you can see all of the rest of our conversations. If people want to find your work, you're at Nate Silver 538 That's and right. at spelled out 538.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to thank Mike Batnick, who did a yeoman's job uh, as our head of research, and Charlie Vollmer as as my producer. Um, you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Mm-hmm.